Okay, they'll all be seated. I can't see whether Ron Olson is in the front row or not. Ron, are you here? Okay, Ron wanted to, uh, well, we'll get your mic. Uh, because we're transferring, we want to get it all corrected. Uh, Ron has one point or two points that he wants to correct in terms of dates that I used. Uh, so I'm, we're going to give the microphone to him. Uh, not that they're all that telling, but I thought since we are creating a record, I wanted to clarify uh, two points. Uh, the Berkshire law firm, namely Munger, Tolson, Olson, worked with the Lubrisol uh, Council in pulling together what Warren described as Lubrisol's proxy describing the background of the transaction. We as counsel for Berkshire started to work on that, gathering the facts pertaining to Berkshire's involvement, essentially David Sokol's and Warren's, uh, during the week of March 15. Warren, in speaking to you about the facts this morning, I believe, placed the beginning of that work in the subsequent week. So I simply wanted to clarify uh, that uh, as we gathered the facts, and though gathering included uh, uh, several interviews of David Sokol uh, during that week. Uh, secondly, uh, in describing internal policies uh, at Berkshire to protect against misbehavior or negligent behavior, Berkshire maintains a something that uh, those in the trading business describe as restricted lists and down that restricted list are any securities in which Berkshire is buying, selling, has a peculiar interest. And that prohibits any of the corporate officers or um, the top officers of the subsidiaries of Berkshire from participating in trades in those securities without the assent, consent of the CFO, Mark Hamburg. That is what I wanted to clarify, Warren. Thanks, Ron. Yeah. Okay, we'll move right along, and uh, we're going to go to 3.30, and then we'll adjourn for a couple of minutes, and then we'll go to, to the regular meeting. And Carol again leads off. Um, Warren and Charlie, both of you expressed a very positive view of BYD and its chairman, Wang Chengfu, when MidAmerican bought, it, bought its stake in 2008. Does BYD remain as attractive a long-term investment now as it was when you acquired your stake? If so, why? Has BYD's recent pattern of unexplained product launch delays affected your confidence in the operation? Charlie's the BYD expert, so I'm going to let him start on that one. Well, of course, the price is still way higher than the price Berkshire paid, and so by its Almost by definition, it's not quite as cheap as it was then. Uh, any company that tries to move as fast as BYD does and on as many fronts is going to have 
various delays and glitches. And, uh, but I would say I'm quite encouraged by what's going on, and I expect uh, delays and glitches. They got in trouble in the auto distribution, but they tried to double auto sales every year for six years, and it worked the first five times. <laughs> yeah. I have nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number 10. Hi, Warren and Charlie. My name is Catherine Borud. I'm from Los Angeles, California. I invest primarily in commodities and commodity equities. I started out back in 2007 buying oil. In the summer of 2008, we reached the peak of the oil bubble. And that's when I reversed my holdings and started shorting oil. I made a nice profit. In 2009, I started buying oil again and oil equities. And I've been doing pretty well. But given the status of the world today and the price of oil, I'm questioning my investments. Is this another oil bubble? Has oil reached its peak? Should I keep my holdings? Should I short oil? Should I exit oil altogether and move into other commodities or other investments? So my question to you is, what are your sentiments regarding oil? Well, I would say you've done a whole lot better than we have. So <laughs> I think the crowd would rather hear from you. Uh, we actually uh, did take a position in oil, I don't know how many years ago. Uh, a long time ago. long time ago. It was $10 a barrel. And uh, <laughs> it wasn't that long ago, though, incidentally. No, I mean, I that, that was in the 1990s, uh, although we... Uh, we've seen oil a lot cheaper than that. And East Texas oil sold for a dime a barrel in 1932. The, uh, we really don't know. I mean, uh, uh, obviously, you're dealing with a finite resource. You know, I don't know whether the world's up to 88 million barrels or was down around 85 million barrels, but there's got to be some comeback. So I wouldn't be surprised if the current figure's getting pretty close to 88 million barrels a day. That's a lot of oil to take out of the ground every day. And, and of course, uh, there are new frontiers have been found, but you are, you've stuck a lot of straws into the, war, into the earth. And it is a finite number, so the one thing I can promise you is, almost promise you, is that oil will sell for a lot more someday. Uh, interestingly enough, you know, how many producing oil wells do you think there are in the United States? Well, the answer is something like 500,000. Now, you know, there's these stripper wells, there's wells out in, near Charlie that have been going for 100 years. Yeah. Uh, but we have looked in a lot of places now. Uh, and what's happening, of course, from the standpoint of the United States companies is that the smaller countries where oil is being found now are quite a bit smarter about how they grant their concessions than people were 50 or 75 or 100 years ago, so that uh, they drive much more intelligent deals than 
That was originally the case when we went exploring around the world. But I have no idea. You know, we traditionally, BNSF had hedged a certain amount of oil and, and uh, because they obviously use huge quantities of diesel. Uh, and uh, I suggested to them, although the, how they run the BNSF is up to them, but I just, I really didn't think we could guess the price of oil. And I thought if we could guess the price of oil, we didn't need to run the railroad. I mean, it was a, took a lot of effort, time to run that railroad. And, and if, if we knew how to make money just sitting in a room uh, trading oil, why not do that instead? So I don't really, we don't hedge, well, in terms of Berkshire's parent company policies, we don't hedge anything in the way of commodities. Some of our subsidiaries do, and that's fine. They, they, they're they responsible for their businesses. But there are very, very few commodities that I've ever thought I was going to, would know the direction of their movement uh, in the next six months or a year. The one thing I'm quite convinced of, as we talked about this morning, is the fact the dollar will become less valuable over time so that the dollar price of most things uh, will go up and maybe go up very substantially, whether they go up enough so that you have the same amount of purchasing power after you pay tax on your nominal gains is another, is another question. I really think that, that an intelligent person uh, can make more money over time thinking about assets that productive assets rather than, 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 than uh, uh, speculating in commodities or, or uh, when, for that matter, fixed dollar investments. But that's maybe my own bias. Charlie? Well, if we'd done nothing but oil from the very beginning, I am confident that we would not have done nearly as well as we have. It, it, to me, that's perfectly obvious. Uh, so I think what, what we've done is much easier than what you're trying to do. And we like easy. Yeah, <laughs> we're not trying to make it any more difficult than we have to. I really don't know any way to have an edge in that sort of activity. I mean, if you are going to try and figure out when to be long or short oil or natural gas or copper or cotton or whatever, I, I don't know. I don't know of people who I feel would have an edge in trying to do that over the next 10 years, but I do know people where I think they'd have a very significant edge in, in uh, investing in, in, in common stocks and maybe distressed bonds for that matter too. Yeah, trading oil worked best of all for the people who bribed Nigeria. That's not our milieu. Well, that's an insight I hadn't heard before. The, um... <laughs> Becky? Oh, got Ron here. I wanted to clarify my clarification. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a lawyer, doesn't it? It, it, it sounds like a lawyer. <laughs> Mark Hamburg uh, was concerned that when I spoke of our uh, insider trading policy and mentioned that we had a restricted list that it, somebody may interpret that as suggesting that Lubrosol was on that restricted list. It was not. What goes on our restricted list are 
securities that we have a position in that we publicly reported. So I just simply wanted to clarify that point. Lubrosol was not on the restricted list. Yeah. Okay, Becky. Um, Charlie, I got several variations of this question, uh, but this one comes from Peter Kerr in Waterloo, Canada. He says, could you please let us know a couple of the most important things you learned during the last year? I'll let Charlie go first. <laughs> well, I hate to admit this because I've ignored high tech all my life, but I actually read that book in the Plex about Google, and I found it a very interesting book. And, and so here I am at my advanced age, and, and I find it interesting the way people have created these engineering cultures, which are quite peculiar and different most of what we have at Berkshire. And uh, will I ever make any use of this? I, I doubt it. But I certainly enjoyed learning it. And if I enjoy learning it, I regard it as important because I think that's what you're here for, is to go to bed every night a little wiser than you were when you got up. I'm just trying to hold my own, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I, what I learned in the last year is, I, is that I'm going to have Charlie write the next press release. <laughs> Warren, I approved that damn press release with no objections. <laughs> the Berkshire shareholders are going to be in terrible trouble if they're relying on me to fix your errors. <laughs> okay, let's go to number 11. Yeah. <laughs> Getting too close to confession time up here. <laughs> Good afternoon, uh, Warren and Charlie. My name's Phil Droof, and I'm here with my wife, Tina, and our good friends, uh, Grummies and the Hendricksons. We're all from Indianapolis, and we're all small business people. So we are not uh, too big to fail. And our question basically is simply this. Do either of you uh, gentlemen think that uh, we might be headed down the same type of path years from now when we get into a situation as taxpayers that we might have to bail out a company on Wall Street that is too big to fail? And if so, have we done anything to avert that? Now, there, are, there are institutions around the world that I think Governments should properly, although people won't like it, but I think that there are institutions around the world that governments would properly. Uh, I, want, I think bail, bail out has got a little bit of a pejorative term on it in, in the sense that stockholders should not be saved, managers should not be saved, but certainly the institutions. And in, in, in some cases, should not be allowed to collapse immediately. I mean, right now we're continuing to follow that policy. For example, with Freddie, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. I mean, they uh, they uh, have not reconstituted themselves as many of the banks and the auto companies. I mean, Chrysler is even paying back, which you know it surprises me. And I, but I, my hats off to them. I, I, I mean that sincerely. That uh, I. I was really on the fence on saving 
the auto companies, but I think the administration uh, did the right thing. I mean, they were they were they weren't saving the auto companies per se. They were they were still working at saving a very fragile economy. And and like I say, and particularly in retrospect, they certainly, in my view, made the right decision. There are, you know, right now, you know, in in Europe, they're deciding whether countries are too big to fail. And uh, so I think that problem uh, will always be with us. Uh, I think for that reason that you have to do things to reduce the propensity to fail, and among those things, I think you have to make it so that the CEO and to some extent the board, but not to the draconian degree that I'll suggest for the CEO, I think that any institution that requires society to come and bail it out for society's sake should should have a system in place that leaves their CEO basically uh, and his spouse dead broke. Uh, because I think that the upside and downside incentives are vastly different. And, and I think the board of directors of those institutions should suffer a severe penalties, nothing like that. But they certainly, you know, should give back the last, say, five years of director's fees or whatever it may be that they've received. Because they, if you run an institution that actually needs the, society can suffer such a blow if you fail, the society needs to come in and save you. You ought to have somebody running that institution and you ought to have incentive practices in place that make it very, very, very painful to the people involved for the failure if it, if it indeed happens. And uh, you also ought to reduce leverage in the system, and I think we've gone to some degree in that direction. But there will be too big to fail institutions 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Right now, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae are sort of too big to figure out. You know, we just, we just, we just sit there and, uh, and, and incidentally, there's nothing wrong with that. We should come, we, it's more important to come up with the right solution than it is to come up with an immediate solution on those. But particularly, I would say in Europe, there are banking institutions and countries that people are facing the question of whether they are too big to fail. Charlie? Well, my answer is that the past panics and depressions by and large started on Wall Street or in stock brokerage. They tended to involve great waves of excessive speculation and bad behavior in the people who were profiting from those waves as salesmen or market makers or promoters or what have you. And I think that this last mess, which created so much danger, should have caused something like happened in the aftermath of the 30s, where we prevented a new mess for a long, long time. But of course, it hasn't done that. And so I think you can confidently expect a new mess or two before your career is over. And I think it is really stupid for our country to have allowed this. Partly the failure is not one of evil, it's one of stupidity. And part of the stupidity is in our great academic institutions who believe a whole lot of things that aren't true. And, and that is a really hard problem to solve. 
You're talking about particularly in finance. These yes, things. of yeah, course. Yeah. And economics, too. Yeah. No, uh, those are not hard scientists, sciences, finance and economics. And finance really attracts people who should have gone into snake charming or... If there's anybody we've forgotten to insult, just pass a note up and we'll get to you. Yeah. Okay, Andrew. This question comes from a shareholder based in Washington, D.C., who's asked to remain anonymous. Uh, this person says, Warren, in the past year, you and Melinda Gates resigned from the board of the Washington Post. What does this say about Berkshire's intention to hold the Washington Post stock over the long term? And is this related to the problems at its for-profit education business, Kaplan? No, I, I made this statement uh, actually publicly, and they may have only run it in the Post. I'm not sure about it elsewhere. But they, uh, I made the statement that we would not be selling any stock. And it had nothing to do with that, that I'm a phone call away from Don Graham or anybody else at the Post, and they can just save a lot of director's fees, and I can save a lot of travel if at age 80 I decide that I'd rather spend a few more days at Berkshire and less on the road. I am, we will not be selling any, any post shares. Can, normally I won't comment about what we'll do on market-level securities, but, but, but uh, I'll be unequivocal about that. And uh, my enthusiasm for the post itself and the management is 100% what it's always been. And I, I am just available a lot cheaper than before if the post management wants any advice. Uh, I don't think Melinda did it on the basis of age. Uh, you'll, have to, you'll have to ask her. I, I really decided at 80 that, that uh, I'd been there since 1974 with an interruption when I was at Cap City's ABC, and, and it's just a lot easier this way. Charlie, do you have any thoughts on serving on boards generally? Charlie's on the Costco board. Well, well, that's because I really admire Costco, and uh, and that's one of the pleasures of my life is interfacing with those people. But that's the only one where we don't, where I don't have a big ownership interest. I think, generally speaking, serving on a whole lot of different boards is for the birds. No, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, area 12. Uh, good afternoon, Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger. Uh, I'm Mark Rabinov from Melbourne, Australia. As an investor from the Asian region, I am concerned that a weaker dollar will erode the value of my Berkshire stock. However, Berkshire is highly productive with real pricing power. So can I be confident that over the long term, any fall in the dollar will be offset by a rise in the value of my Berkshire stock. And by that I mean in addition to any intrinsic growth in the underlying business. The answer is no. <laughs> It'd be a lot easier if you just had the Australian dollar go down. The Australian dollar was one of two, two uh, currencies that we did own last year that contributed to the $100 million profit. But, uh, no, I cannot... I cannot tell you what policies will be followed in the United States and what policies will be followed in Australia that will, uh, what they will be and how they will affect the relative value of those two currencies, say, 10 years from now. 
I think the movement could be quite dramatic, and I think it actually could be dramatic in either direction. That's why I don't know what to do. Uh, but the only the only promise you'll get from from uh, Charlie and me about Berkshire is that we do every day, as I said in the uh, annual report, try to think about increasing the earning power and the intrinsic value of Berkshire and. To the degree we increase it, the shareholders will, will, or to the degree we decrease it, the uh, shareholders will uh, share in, in, in exactly the same proportion as Charlie and I do. We, we will, our interests are 100% aligned. We we we, uh, we will make or lose money through our stock, uh, and. Uh, Luck, to some extent, will depend. Will will determine uh, how well we do. We know we can't do remotely as well in the future as we have in the past. There is no way to compound. There's no way we know to compound the kind of sums we're working with now at rates that are anywhere close to what we were able to do when working with much smaller sums. Uh, but you'll get our best efforts. Charlie? I can't add to that. Australia has these fabulous open pit mines. And uh, in a time when Asia is just totally booming with its demand for metals, I can't tell you how Berkshire Stock isn't going to perform vis-a-vis -vis mines in Australia. I think we'll do pretty well compared to companies here in the United States. Yeah, I think so too. Carol? Um, this shareholder wishes to be known only by his initials, AJ. The importance of Berkshire's equity portfolio has diminished over the past few decades. Today, I view Berkshire's appetite for equity as an afterthought and instead see its focus as being on large acquisitions. Would you agree with this, and where do you see the equity portfolio going over the next five or ten years? Well, I prefer large acquisitions, but it's not an afterthought at all uh, in terms of the portfolio. I mean, we, Charlie and I spend, well, we probably spend more time thinking about the portfolio because it's only occasionally that we get a chance uh, to think about acquisitions that are sizable and that are available to us. So. We are equally interested in both aspects of Berkshire's operations, but where we hope we really get lucky is in adding significant companies to what we have already and having our the companies that we already own make various bold-on acquisitions. We've had several of those already this year that you don't read about. Uh, uh, a lot of our companies have the potential to do to earn considerably more money five or ten years from now than uh, than they're earning now. So both the development of those businesses, which really resides with the managers, Charlie and I don't contribute anything on that, uh, but we will we I, we spend as much time thinking about the portfolios as as we ever did, and and uh, you know it's it's important. I mean, if you talk about 150 some billion dollars in in cash and marketable securities, uh, the performance of that particular segment is going to have a lot to do with how well Berkshire does over time. 
Charlie? Yeah, we'll always have a, a fair amount of marketable securities because of our insurance subsidiaries. And, uh, but as we get forced by our size into the bigger and bigger stocks, of course we're going to do less well than we did when we had a bigger universe of practicable, th practicable things to uh, consider. A lot less well. I mean, it's just, it really is the nature of things. We, we are buying securities where uh, we have to put billions of dollars in them in most cases, and, and that is not a field that, that is you know, unlooked at by other analysts. And so it's, it's, it's impossible to have a big edge. We hope we have a small edge. On the other hand, when we were doing so well in marketable securities, nobody called us and said, I have a wonderful business, and you're the only place in the world where I would want to transfer it. And now that happens, what, a couple times a year at least? Yeah. And yeah. I really prefer, in some ways, this part of the game to the earlier game. It's more fun to create permanent partners doing constructive things than just outsmart other people and shuffling little pieces of paper. It's fun to do both, actually. Yeah, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't see you <laughs> holding back. <laughs> okay, let's go to the other room, 13. Hi, I'm Whitney Tilson, a shareholder from New York. Uh, thank you for including in your latest annual letter such complete and clear valuation information regarding Berkshire. You stated that the operating earnings of the insurance businesses are excluded from your earnings table. And I know you said this morning that 2011 is going to be a break-even year at best. But in light of the disclosure in the annual report that Berkshire earned $17 billion in profit over the last eight years without a single money-losing year, are you being overly conservative? Don't you think the intrinsic value of your insurance businesses is more than just their float, especially Geico, for the reasons you discussed this morning? Yeah, I'd agree with that, Whitney. Uh, but I, uh, it's very hard to estimate, uh, you know, what what the normal underwriting profit might be might be over the next twenty years or something of the sort. And uh, uh, so I, I agree with you. I don't know whether I'd call it overly conservative. I, I, I would say it's conservative to assume break-even underwriting. But as you will, I mean, if we had another Katrina or something of the sort, uh, and forget about, you know, winter storms in Europe and all that, I mean, we could lose significant money in underwriting this year, and, and we expect to lose significant money in underwriting, you know, maybe every, every fifth year, every tenth year, whatever it might be. But I think you're right in saying that it would not be inappropriate to include some normalized underwriting profit in addition to the, in addition to the uh, calculation that I made uh, in the annual report. Uh, Whitney, let me help you by asking another question of Warren. Is there any other large casualty insurance operation in the world that you know of that you would trade for ours? Well, not remote, no, 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 nothing close. I mean, we, however we lucked into it, We've got, we have an unbelievable insurance operation. And I mean, it, it, Geico, you know, is fabulous. Uh, and 
you know, if you think about since 1936, the idea has been out there. But, you know, with all the strength that all the other companies had and the agency plants and everything else, you know, Geico has now moved to where it's the third largest in the United States and gaining ground every day uh, on the two ahead of them and, and doing it very profitably. Geico's combined ratio, Geico had an underwriting profit of close to eight points, uh, as I remembered in the first quarter. Uh, now, that's going to be probably the best quarter of the year, I should add, but it's, it's a marvelous business. Ajit has built a business from scratch in the reinsurance business that in many respects, you know, he operates all alone. He may not see a lot of transactions in any given period of time, but there are certain things where if somebody wants huge amounts of insurance uh, and a quick answer uh, or even a slow answer sometimes, we'll give them a quick one, um, there's really nobody else to call. It's a little like Charlie mentioned on acquisition opportunities. So he's and he's done it. I mean, it, it didn't exist when he got there. Tad Montrose has got a magnificent operation at, at, at Gen Re. I mean, it, it had to get shaken out to, to quite a degree, but Tad has got a very, very disciplined uh, business there. And then we have a group of smaller companies that some of them have some very unusual franchises. So they're really, you know, I, uh, I didn't have anything to do with it, so I can, I, can, I, I, I can brag about these people, but they have really done a job in building a, an insurance company that, uh, that I don't think anything, I don't think there's anything like it. Yeah, yeah, some of you people that have been around a long time, you invested with an Omaha boy, and you ended up owning part of the best in casualty insurance business in the world. Yeah, if you go to yeah. 30th and Harney, you'll see a building there of uh, national indemnities, we paid seven million for national indemnity, a million four for its sister company, National Fire and Marine, and that's the same building that we operated out of in 1967. We're operating out of it today. The only difference is that today it's got more net worth than any insurance company in the world. <laughs> yeah, so we, it's not that great a business as a business, casualty insurance. It's a tough game. There are temptations to be stupid in it. It's like banking. And, 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 but if you're in it, I think we've got the best one. Okay, with those modest statements, we'll move on to Becky. <laughs> this question comes from Mark Jordan in Charleston, South Carolina. He writes, in a period of high inflation, which particular businesses owned by Berkshire Hathaway will perform the best? And which will perform the worst, and why? Well, the businesses that will perform the best are the ones that require little capital investment to facilitate inflationary growth, and that have strong positions that allow them to increase prices with inflation. And uh, uh, you know, we have we have a candy business, for example, and the value of the dollar since we bought that candy business has probably fallen uh, at least 85%, I would say, 80 to 85%. And that candy business uh, sells 75% more pounds of candy than it did uh, when we bought it, but it has 10 times the revenues. 
and it doesn't take a lot more capital. So that kind of a business, any business that can, has enough freedom to price to offset inflation and doesn't require commensurate investment or a huge investment to support it will do well. Uh, businesses like our, our utilities, which get, in effect, a bond-like return, but require, you know, if you're going to build a, a generating plant and it costs twice as much per kilowatt hour of capacity, uh, and all you're going to get is a fixed return, and yields on bonds go up, perhaps dramatically, if you get high inflation, uh, is not going to do that well uh, in an inflationary period, just because it has certain aspects of a bond-like investment and bonds generally are not going to do well uh, in inflation. Charlie? Well, but like our insurance operations, uh, our capital-intensive railroad business is certainly one of the best railroads in the world. And our utility operations are certainly one of the best utility operations in the world. And so, it isn't all bad to be up there world-class in your main businesses. Our railroad, uh, the, the government's talked about building a high-speed rail system in California. I think they're talking about 800 miles of track. And their estimated cost uh, was about $43 billion. And estimated costs on constructions and things like that go up dramatically much more often than they get reduced even by a minor amount. And of course, we paid $43 billion, counting debt assumed, for a rail system which has 22,000 miles of main track and 6,000-plus locomotives and, and uh, 13,000 bridges, if you ever want to buy a bridge. Uh, so that the replacement value of that asset during inflationary already is huge, and it would grow dramatically, and the world, our country, will always need uh, rail transportation. Uh, so it, it is a terrific asset to own. I'll just leave it at that. Okay, area one again. Um, I'm Martin Greenberger, UCLA Anderson School, uh, where I work in disruptive technologies, not finance. You're forgiven. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, my friend Walt would like to know if Berkshire has been considering splitting its type A shares, like it did its type B shares. Uh, and if so, what are the pros and cons, in your opinion, and what would be the short-term and longer-term effects? Yeah, well, in effect, we've already split it, you know, uh, 1,500 for one by having to be available. And, you know, we have a situation where the company will never be sold, but, but if any transaction involves the A stock, the B shares, are going to get treated exactly the same. Uh, so there's really no disadvantage to owning the B stock, except it has somewhat less voting power than the A stock. Uh, 
but in every other way, it's, it's, it's the same instrument. And uh, so we already have a split stock available. So I would tell Walt that, that uh, he really should not count heavily on the A stock getting split. Uh, Charlie? Yeah, Warren used to cheer up his old friends by telling them, may you live until the A stock splits. And I would love to make that deal myself. <laughs> Andrew. Uh, this question comes from Ma uh, Matthew Palmer of uh, North Andover, Massachusetts. And he writes, Mr. Buffett, uh, you have praised Ajit as a possible successor. Since he may be in line as our next CEO, can you give us a concrete example of a policy that he's written that's impressed you? And can you talk a little bit about the way he thinks since we rarely get an opportunity to hear from him. Yeah, Ajit is not exactly a publicity hound. Uh, Ajit, no. <laughs> he, uh, I can't think of any decision he's ever made that I think I could have made better. Uh, and I've, I'm not privy to all of his transactions anymore. Uh, they're just, there are lots of them that, that are not of huge size or of great interest. But, but he tells me, about all the interesting things that come along and all the very big things that come along. And uh, I would say this, you'd be better off voting with his, him than with me after listening to any proposition he brings up. He is, he is as rational a thinker as, as Charlie is, as anybody I've met. He loves what he does. Um, He's creative. He's very creative. Uh, we have moved into one area after another uh, in reinsurance uh, when people came in copying us in one one uh, area of business that we would be operating in. Ajit comes up with something else. Lately, we've been much more active in, in life reinsurance. But who knows what tomorrow brings? I mean, if there happens to be a a huge cat uh, in the third quarter of this year or something of the sort, that might open up all kinds of uh, opportunities in writing uh, covers when, when, if capacity got strained. But who knows, who knows what will happen? All I know is that Ajit's mind works like a machine, you know, day after day, and he, he does love what he does, which is an important part of doing well in any activity. And uh, I really, I don't know what his, his best deal was. I know what my best deal was, which was hiring him. <laughs> Charlie? Yeah. Sir William Osler, who created a model medical school for the world, used to say that the secret of success in a field was getting very interested in it. Well, Ajit is really interested in what he does. Many of you don't know this, but every Thanksgiving, Ajit flies to London because they don't have a Thanksgiving holiday. We give him Christmas off, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ajit, we just, uh, you know, he is, he, I, I, I say how invaluable he is, and I'm not exaggerating when we talk about him, and he, he, he uh, he is 
to an extraordinary degree, he thinks of Berkshire first. Ajit, at various periods when insurance companies became popular for one reason or another, there was, you know, the, there was the big thing about Bermuda Company some years ago, Ajit could have monetized himself to an incredible degree. He still could do it. I mean, people would hand him a significant percentage of any company being formed with lots of money so that immediately he could create, I would guess, in the hundreds of millions of wealth uh, without lifting a finger, just by somebody putting up, you know, a couple billion dollars and saying you've got 20% of it or whatever it may be. And, I mean, and listen, he's smart. He knows that. And it's, it's, it doesn't cross his mind to do anything like that. I mean, he, we have, in comp, he always, he always thanks me for what I do at the end of the year. And I feel I've left off a zero, you know, when I get all through. It's, uh, he's just a remarkable human being. And uh, we are very, very lucky that uh, I think he has a lot of fun in what he does at Berkshire. He's got a cadre of about 30 people that work with him. Uh, there's many more that are settling claims and doing that sort of thing on runoff business. But, but it's, you won't find anything like it, in my view, not only in the insurance world, but really in almost any part of the, uh, the business world. Let's go well, there. You didn't answer the question. Oh. Maybe you avoided it on purpose. Oh. Is what are our worst businesses? What are our worst businesses? Well, generally speaking, and this is this is general. Uh, I have well, I've made certain mistakes in going into smaller businesses that really never had the potential of becoming big. Uh, but I would say overall. Uh, Probably I would call retailing, uh, you know, Dexter was our worst business, but, uh, but I have uh, the Furniture Mart, obviously, is a, is a terrific operation. Uh, but we have not made, despite being in numerous retailing, quite a few retailing businesses, for quite a while, we have not created major earning power there. Wouldn't you agree on that, Charlie? Yeah, but luckily it's a small part of the operation. Yeah. But you're right. But that's been the hardest game for us. And, you know, if we were a little smarter, we could have figured that out better. Well, <laughs> if we were a little smarter, we could have done a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Of course, C's is a retailing business to some degree. Yes. And, and, you know, we had enormous success there, so maybe we started thinking we were geniuses. <laughs> you know, we were like the duck on the pond when it was raining, and we thought we were rising in the world because of merit, and it was just because it was raining. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll go to number two. Uh, Joel Tellinghast, Boston, Massachusetts. What's the proper way to think about goodwill and return on capital? Berkshire's manufacturing service and retail businesses earn pre-tax returns on tangible capital over 20%, which suggests either skilled managers or fantastic businesses. But the return on allocated equity is in the single digits, which looks drab. Accountants treat intangible similarly because they have different economics. Um, 
for an indestructible brand like C's or Coca-Cola, I can see why the intangibles should not be amortized because it's worth more every year. And your comments on Geico policyholders were one way to think about that. But all the tobacco companies have billions of dollars of goodwill and unit sales of cigarettes decline every year in developed countries. So perhaps they should be amortized. And for Time Warner, AOL, goodwill definitely needed to be amortized. Yeah, goodwill, you mentioned AOL, Time Warner, something sort. It should be written off, actually. I mean, it wasn't, uh, it was just a mistake in purchase price. The goodwill should not be used in evaluating the fundamental attractiveness of a business. There you should look at return on tangible assets, and even then there's some minor, some other adjustments you may want to make. But basically, in evaluating the businesses we own, in terms of what the management are doing and what the underlying economics of the business are, forget about goodwill. In terms of evaluating the job we're doing and allocating capital, you have to include goodwill because we paid for it. So if we buy, you know, Coca-Cola uh, goes back to 1886 and John Pemberton at Jacobs Pharmacy in Atlanta, and there was not a whole lot of goodwill put on the books when he sold that first Coca-Cola. If you were to buy the company now, the whole company, you would be putting a figure, you know, of 100 billion or something like that on it. You shouldn't amortize that. And you shouldn't, in judging the economics of the business, look at that. But in terms of judging the economics of the business that purchased it, we we'll call it Berkshire, then you have to allow for the goodwill because we're, we are allocating capital and paying a lot for it. I, I don't think the amortization of goodwill uh, makes any sense. Uh, I think write-offs of it, when you find out you've made the wrong purchase and the business doesn't earn commensurate with the tangible assets employed and, and plus the goodwill, I think write-offs of it uh, make sense. Uh, but when looking at businesses as to whether they're good businesses, mediocre businesses, poor businesses, look at the return on net tangible assets. Charlie? Well, I think that's right. But as, as the gentleman says, when we buy a business, a whole business, we never get a huge bargain. And, and of course, we may get down toward 10% pre-tax earnings on what we pay. That isn't so awful as you think when you, a lot of the money comes from insurance float that costs you nothing. In other words, if you have 60 billion afloat and God gives you 6 billion a year of earnings, it's not all bad. Well, on Lubrizol, we're paying uh, close to $9 billion uh, for the equity, and it earns, and you should make adjustments for debt, but it's not an important factor there. And, we're, you know, current rate of earnings is probably a billion pre-tax. And now Lubrizol itself is employing far, you know, they're, they're employing, uh, you know, call it, uh, you know, two, two and a half billion uh, of equity to earn that billion of pre-tax. So it's a very good business in terms of the assets that are employed, but when we end up paying the premium we pay to buy into it, it becomes a billion pre-tax on something close to nine billion. Uh, you have to judge us based on, on close to a nine billion dollar investment. You have to judge James Hambrick in running the business based on the much lower capital that, that uh, 
he has been played. It's, it, it can turn out to be a very good business, and we can turn out to have made uh, at least a minor mistake uh, if it isn't as good a business uh, as we think it is now, but still, still is a very satisfactory business based on the tangible capital employed. Charlie, can you make that clear? <laughs> well, it's, it's just, it, it, we are not going to buy, in the climate we're in now, operating businesses that are all decent for low prices. It's just not going to happen. Carol? Um, in the book about Charlie, Damn Right, by Janet Lowe, Charlie talks about his view on teaching finance. He says that he would use the histories of a hundred or so companies that did something right or wrong as a basis for teaching the course. Could each of you, and since this concerns Charlie, could each of you, we'll start with Charlie, give us an example or two from either category, right moves or wrong moves? I predict Charlie's gonna talk about Costco. Go ahead, Charlie. <laughs> well, Costco, of course, is a... <laughs> a business that became the best in the world in its category. And it did it with an extreme meritocracy and an extreme ethical duty, self-imposed, to take all its cost advantages as fast as it could accumulate them and pass them on to the customers. And of course that created ferocious customer loyalty. And and uh, it's been a wonderful business to watch. And of course, strange things happen when you, when you do that and do that long enough. Costco has one store in Korea that will do over 400 million in sales this year. These are figures that can't exist in retailing, but of course they do. And so that's an example of, of somebody having the right managerial system, the right personnel selection, the right ethics, uh, the right diligence, and et cetera, et cetera. That is quite rare. And if you, if once or twice in a lifetime you're associated with such a business, you're a very lucky person. And the more normal business is a business like, say, General Motors, which became the most successful business of its kind in the world and wiped out its common shareholders, what, last year? That is a very interesting story and a value line type figures that took people through the entire history of General Motors. And I would try and relate the changes in the graph and in the data to what happened in the business. And to some extent, they faced a really difficult problem. Heavily unionized business combined with great success and very tough competitors who came up from Asia and elsewhere and to some extent from Europe. And that is a real problem, which of course, to prevent wealth from killing you, your success turning into a disadvantage is a big problem in business. And so there are all these wonderful lessons in those, in those graphs. 
I don't know why people don't do it. The graphs don't even exist that I would use to teach. I can't imagine anybody being dumb enough not to have the kind of graphs I yearn, yearn for. <laughs> but so far as I know, there's no business in the school in the country that's yearning for these graphs. Partly the reason they don't want it is that if you taught a history of business this way, you'd be trampling on the territories of all the little professors and subdisciplines. You'd be stealing some of their best cases. And, and the bureaucracies, even academic bureaucracies, people protect their own turf. And of course, a lot of that happened in General Motors. It, yeah. It's a, I really think the world, that's the way it should be taught. Harvard Business School once taught it much that way, and they stopped. And I'd like to make a case study as to why they stopped. I think I can success, I think I can successfully guess. It's a, a course in history of business trampled on the territory of barons of other disciplines, like the baron of marketing, the baron of finance, the baron of whatever. And uh, this IBM is an interesting case. I mean, there's just one after another that are utterly fascinating. And I don't think they're properly taught at all because nobody wants to do the full sweep. Charlie and I were on a plane recently that was hijacked. With what? It was hijacked. I'm telling about our experience on that hijacked plane when the hijackers picked us out as the two dirty capitalists that they really had to execute. And, but they were, they were a little abashed about it. They didn't really have anything against us. So they said that each of us would be given one request before they shot us. And they turned to Charlie and they said, what would you like as your request? Charlie said, I would like to give once more my speech on the virtues of Costco with, <laughs> with illustrations. And the hijacker said, well, that sounds pretty reasonable to me. And he turned to me and said, and what would you like, Mr. Buffett? And I said, shoot me first. <laughs> Yeah. Well, well. Anyway. Okay, number three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sumit Mehra from Kashmir in India. Uh, Mr. Buffett, hope you enjoyed your first trip to India. I sure here's did. My, here's my question. One of the most important things that drive people are incentives. But if you live in a rich society, it's very hard to get your kids to work hard and reach their full potential because they just don't need to. So if, you're, if you or Charlie decide to have a kid in the next five years. <laughs> it will There'll take be a star in the East. <laughs> it will take more than a decision. <laughs> how would you incentivize him or her? I thought, you were, gonna, I thought you were gonna say, how would you? <laughs> No, it's a good question. I apologize for interrupting. How would you incentivize him or her to compete against the hungry and highly motivated kids from emerging markets like China, Brazil, Russia, or India? Yeah, yeah I, I think certainly that if you are very rich and you bring up your kids to think that they are 
they are more important in society or that they have some special, simply because they came out of the right womb, that, you know, that's just a terrible mistake. But Charlie has raised eight children that uh, I know quite well, most of them, and I don't think any of them have that sense. But it's, if, if you really are going to raise your kids to think that uh, other people should do all the work for them and that uh, they will be entitled to sit around and fan themselves for the rest of their lives, I mean, uh, you know, you will probably not get a good result. I, you know, in my, Charlie's been rich most, most of the, the uh, time when his kids, many of his kids were growing up, some of his kids were growing up. I've been rich while my kids were getting, certainly when they got into high school and, and college. But, but I, don't, I don't think, I certainly didn't want to give them the idea that they were special just because their parents were rich. And, and uh, uh, I, don't think it, I don't think you necessarily have to get a bad result or have children that don't have any incentives um, simply because their parents are rich. The one thing I don't think you want to give them an incentive to do is try and outdo their parents at what their parents happen to be good at. I don't think that makes sense whether you're a professional athlete or a rich person or whatever it may be, a great novelist or you, know, you name it. But uh, uh, I, I really think if, if you're rich and your kids turn out to have no incentives, I think I don't, I don't think you should point at them. I think you should probably point at yourself, Charlie. Well, I don't think you can raise children in an affluent family and have them love working 60 hours a week in the hot sun, digging fence post holes or something. That's not going to work. So, to some extent, you are destroying certain kinds of incentives. And uh, my advice to you is to uh, lose your fight as gracefully as you can. I'm not sure if you can, if you're poor, if you can get your kids to love the idea of working 60 hours a week. It, uh, they may have to, but... Uh, the kids no, you, that really get interested in something will work no matter how sure. rich they are. But it's rare to have an Ajit-like intensity of interest. You know, if you were a proctologist, you might not like your day as it went on and on. I think we better move along. <laughs> Becky? <laughs> this question comes from a shareholder from Central Iowa who asks, Berkshire Hathaway, Hathaway does well in part because its managers want to be there for non-pecuniary reasons, but it seems likely that the next operation CEO will best be filled by someone who insists on a salary of more than $100,000. What kind of compensation structure, structure do you expect for the next generation of Berkshire leadership? Well, I think the next CEO uh, will make a lot of money and should make a lot of money. I mean, the responsibility for running a company with a couple hundred billion dollars of market value uh, should pay well. I think that whatever the level the board decides then uh, in terms of a base salary should be 
supplemented uh, by probably uh, an option system that incorporates a couple of things that are perhaps unusual. I don't think the option price, the original strike price, should be less than if the company were for sale, the assets would bring. So the idea of giving somebody an option during some depressed part of the stock market at the market price, I think, is crazy because you wouldn't sell your business at that price, and why sell part of it uh, on that basis? So I think the base price should be what the business is worth at the time you start, and then I think if, if uh, because of the compounding feature of leaving money there, uh, you know, no management at all would produce some gain in value over time. So I think there should be a increase in the base price. Uh, annually uh, at some rate and then minus the dividend that's being paid. So if, if you uh, assume a 3% dividend was paid uh, and you wanted to have a hurdle rate of increasing at 7 or 8% a year, then you would have the option price accelerate maybe at 4 or 5%. But with that kind of a structure, I think you can give a very large option because you, uh, if somebody is creating excess value above a given rate on a very large sum, I think they deserve something quite significant in terms of that, that excess uh, earned. Now, they, the present compensation system has no relevance at all to what uh, my successor should, should earn. It, uh, uh, the main thing is getting the right person with the right values who interacts well with the uh, uh, the managers and who knows how to allocate capital. And, and as you just heard a little earlier, our managers who accomplish a lot, if they accomplish, and if they're working with big operations so that it, it turns into a lot of dollars, uh, they can make a lot of money with Berkshire. They, n nothing is worked off the eccentricities of Charlie and me at the, at the, at the top level. It, so, you know, people make, uh, well into eight figures sometimes at Berkshire, but they earn it, and they don't get it because of any phony targets or anything of that sort. They get it because they really deliver incredible, in some cases, excess value to Berkshire. Charlie? Well, I hope it will be a long time in the future, and I don't regard it as absolutely inconceivable that, that Warren Spot will someday be occupied by a, a very rich man who has adopted Warren's system of pay. I think somebody in America has to be the exemplar for, for not grabbing all you can. I, I think it's a very important part of the whole scheme. I don't think you better run an ad, though, after I go that says CEO wanted $100,000 pay plus pleasant surroundings. <laughs> okay. We'll go to number four. Hi, Mr. Buffett, Mr. Munger. My name is Vern Cushenberry, and this question is on behalf of a group of investors that made the trip up today from Overland Park, Kansas. Given your interest in renewable energy and natural resources, 
I wonder if you'd be willing to share your thoughts on how a world of limited and depleting clean water supplies and declining food stocks affects your investment strategies and thinking on the future. Yeah, I would say it's an important subject, but it doesn't affect our investment strategy to any real degree. In other words, you know, we would love to buy another GEICO. We would love to buy another BNSF. We'd love to buy another uh, Mid-American. Uh, and we look at those businesses over a long time frame, but we are looking at what we expect their earning power to be uh, three, five, ten, fifteen years down the road compared to what what we are paying. So I, I would say that there are a number of societal issues that really do not enter into our uh, investment or purchase of business uh, type decisions. Charlie? Well, I would uh, advise not paying too much attention to the clean water issue. If there's enough energy, you can always get enough clean water. Israel sometimes goes month after month making half its water from seawater. With enough energy, well, you, you have, the water problem goes away. And, uh, and, uh, and that's very helpful in, in considering the future. And, and regarding the agricultural productivity, I think one of the main reasons for being restrained in the use of hydrocarbons is that modern agriculture won't work without them. So I'm a, I'm a great believer in being conservative in terms of blowing all the hydrocarbons on heating houses and running cars. I think that, think of how happy we'd be if we'd taken a bunch of that dollar oil in the Middle East and just carted it here and put it in salt caverns. I mean, you can argue we really screwed up the past. And you can argue all the people who think that our main solution is to drill, drill, drill. They're all nuts. <laughs> it's probably quite wise to use up the other fellow's hydrocarbons while preserving our own. Certainly. It's not going away because we're not drilling it now. But you can see that this will lead into unproductive discussion. Okay, we'll move right on to Andrew. <laughs> uh, this next question actually just came in by email uh, from someone in the audience from their BlackBerry, actually a prominent investor who asked that his name not be uh, um, named. Um, his question is the following. He writes, your purchase of Lubrizol was done in a negotiated transaction. The board of Lubrizol did not market the company for sale nor run an auction. According to the proxy, you did not permit the company to run a go-shop process despite their request that you allow them to do so. Did the board of Lubrizol breach its fiduciary duty by not running a more competitive process to sell the company? And if not, why not? Let me do this. Okay, Charlie will. <laughs> he volunteers. No, the board at Lubrizol did not breach its duty because we were not going to participate in the transaction if they didn't do it our way. Yeah, we. We, we basically don't participate in auctions, and, and 
actually just very, very recently, uh, we were asked to participate in one, and, and, and we're just not interested. They may end up getting less money than they would have gotten from us, but if they want to auction it, the one thing I can guarantee them, you know, is that when they get all through, we will not pay them what we would have paid them originally if they, if they stepped up. So they, they get a very certain deal. They got a very significant price, in my view, and in the view of two advisors. And if they had said, we'd, we want to conduct an auction, we'd, we would have said, good luck, and, and uh, we'd have looked at something else. Has anybody else got an easy question? <laughs> okay, number five. <laughs> I, hi, Charlie. I think I have an easy question. My give name it, is give it to me, Kay. then. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Stuart Kay from Materan Capital Management in Stamford, Connecticut. And Warren, you have often described the big part of your job is allocating capital. Going forward, by just looking at Berkshire's financial statements, how can we determine how good of a job you have done at allocating capital? Well, the real test uh, will be whether the earnings progress at a rate that's commensurate with the amount of capital that's being retained. And uh, over time, a market value test, but markets can be very volatile and capricious. But over time, obviously, we, the, unless the market value of Berkshire is significantly greater than the amount of capital that we have kept from you, retained, and, and used to buy businesses, uh, you know, the verdict is against us if we ever start selling it a discount to that factor. But you just have to, and, you know, it is not a perfect measurement, and certainly is not on a three-month or six-month or one-year basis. But over time, if we're going to keep your money, we have to earn a better-than-average return uh, on that money we keep, and that has to translate into the stock selling at a premium over the money we retain from you. And so far, we've done okay on that, but the job gets tougher every year. Charlie? Yeah, we, we have uh, continued to beat the market averages. We just aren't beating our own past record. And I guarantee that will continue, uh, at least the last half of it. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, I guarantee only the last half of it, right? Yeah. Okay, Carol? Um, this question is from Mike Rifkin. Uh, he wants to ask about five transactions you made in recent years with very different terms. Goldman, $5 billion at 10% plus warrants. GE, $5 billion at 10% plus warrants. Dow Chemical, $3 billion at 8.5% convertible to common. Wrigley, M&M Mars, $4.4 billion at 11.45. Swiss Re, $2.7 billion at 12%. Now, why the different interest rates, he said, and how about why the warrants in some cases, and why did the rich Mars family need $4.4 billion to do a deal, and at 11.45 percent. Well, we'll let the Mars family speak for themselves, but the, in terms of comparing those five deals, uh, it, was, it was $3 billion with GE, and, and uh, the Mars deal actually involved a 
$1 million preferred stock, which has some unusual characteristics, so it, you have to look at it as a package. But the important thing is that every one of those deals was done at a different time, although the Goldman and the GE deals were done in close proximity with each other. And market conditions, you know, you heard Charlie in the movie talk about opportunity costs. Our opportunity costs were different in every single one of those five transactions. And incidentally, we could have done a much better, I could have done a much better job of allocating our money, you know, in terms of the post-panic uh, period. I was early on Goldman and GE compared to the situation five months later. But, you know, the, we don't have, we, we not only don't have perfect foresight, sometimes it's pretty, it's pretty bad. But each deal, when I did, when I did the Swiss radio, I was not thinking about the Dow Chemical deal, which was committed to maybe a year plus earlier. I was thinking about what else I could do with $2.7 billion. And that, that's the way all the decisions are made. So they are not related, they're not related to each other. They, they, go, through, they, they go through a mind that is looking at everything available that day, including the amount of cash we have, the likelihood of being able to do something else next week or next month, what else we can do that day. And past deals we've made don't really make any difference. In fact, one of the things, one of the errors people make in business, and sometimes it can be a huge error, is that they try and measure every deal against the best deal that they've ever made. So they say, you know, I'd made this wonderful deal for maybe an insurance policy written, it might be a company bought, it might be a stock bought, and they're determined that they're never going to make a deal that isn't that attractive in the future. And so they, in effect, sometimes they take themselves out of the game. The, 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 the goal is not to make a better deal than you've ever made before. The goal is to make a satisfactory deal that's the best deal that you can make at the time. And Charlie relates it to marriage, and I'll let him expand on that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> No, those are, of course we're going to make different deals at different times based on different opportunity costs. There's no other rational way to make deals. Okay, we'll go to number six. <laughs> Keith McGowan, Norfolk, Massachusetts. Thank you, Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger. Thank you for being a role model. Your ethics, frugality, sense of humor, honesty, sharing your ideas on investing, sharing your ideas on business, uh, make this world a, a better place for everyone. Charlie mentioned in a, a, pri a prior answer about continuous learning. Uh, Mr. Buffett, you read about five newspapers a day. You also read many annual reports and other business-related reports. You have the ability to read much faster than the vast majority of people. Reading is a fantastic thing. What advice would you give to children in high school college or adults who want to increase their ability to read faster? 
Well, you know, that, it, it, that's an interesting question because uh, I do read, as you described, the five papers and lots of 10Ks and 10Qs. Unfortunately, I'm not a fast reader uh, and I'm, I'm not as fast as I used to be on, on reading. Uh, it, uh, uh, but I, I don't know how effective uh, various speed reading classes may be, but if they are effective, you know, I would, uh, I would really uh, suggest anybody that can improve their speed. I wish, I wish I could read a lot faster than I can. Charlie can read faster than I can. And uh, it's a huge advantage to be able to read fast. And, you know, there's that old Woody Allen story about how he took the speed reading course and he met somebody who was telling how wonderful it was. And the, uh, and the guy said, well, give me an example. He said, and Woody Allen said, well, he said, I read War and Peace last night in 20 minutes. It's about Russia. You know, man. <laughs> well, that's the problem I have when I try and read fast. I get all through reading the book and I say it's about business. You know, so uh, I, I really don't know the, the effectiveness of speed reading type courses, but, but if you know of any friends or you've, you, know, uh, you can learn more about that and they are, there are effective techniques, obviously the thing to do is to learn them very young because there's really, you know, there's, there's nothing, there's hardly anything more pleasurable, you know, than, than, than reading and reading and reading and reading and Charlie and I do a lot of it, we continue to do a lot of it, but I don't do it as fast as I would like to. Charlie? Well, I think speed is overestimated. I had a roommate at Caltech who had a very distinguished mind, and I could do problems faster than he could, but he never made a mistake, and I did. <laughs> so I wouldn't be too discouraged if you have to go a little slower. What the hell difference does it make? <laughs> Pass that peanut brittle worm. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You may have noticed we have a 15-pound box out for sale in the other room, but Charlie was looking for a 25-pound box. Yeah. Uh, Becky? This question comes from Eric Weissman, who asks, are you worried about Congress playing politics with the raising of the debt ceiling? What would this do to Berkshire Hathaway stock and to the overall economy? You mean if they didn't raise it? If uh, they didn't raise yeah. it. Yeah. Right. Well, it, it would probably uh, be the most asinine, you know, act that Congress, which uh, ever performed. That one time in Indiana, back in the 1890s, I think they passed a bill. I know it was introduced. Uh, you can look it up on a search engine. Uh, they passed a bill to change the value of pi, the mathematical term pi, to an even three, because they said it would be easier for the school children to work with. Well, <laughs> that's the only bill I can think of that would give competition <laughs> to a refusal to raise the debt ceiling. I mean, it, it's extraordinary. I mean, it really is extraordinary that with our deficit running, you know, well over $100 billion a month, uh, and all kinds of items that can be changed. I mean, there's, having a debt ceiling 
to start with is, is a mistake. I mean, it doesn't, the United States of, of 2011 has a different debt capacity than the, the United States of 1911. And we're always, it's gonna be a growing country and we're gonna have a growing debt capacity. That doesn't mean I think it's a great idea at all to have debt growing as a percentage of GDP, but to stick debt ceilings on so that these games get played and all the time that gets wasted and everything and, and, and the, you know, the amount of the number of silly statements that you hear and it just, it just seems such a waste of time for a country that's got a lot of things to do. Um, but in the end, they won't, in my view, there's no chance that they uh, don't increase the debt ceiling, and I would love to see them, you know, like, well, I'd love to see them eliminate the idea because it just, it results in these periodic uh, kind of stalemate operations where everybody uses it for posturing purposes and everything of the sort. But uh, it, the United States is not going to have a debt crisis uh, of any kind as long as we keep issuing our notes in our own currency. You know, the, uh, the difference between being able to borrow in your own currency and having to borrow in another currency is night and day. The only thing we have to worry about is the printing press and inflation. And if you're a member of the Euro, European Monetary Union, you have to worry about you can't print money. You can, uh, you can go and get your coal members to try and help you out. But giving up the right to issue debt in your own currency is a huge step, and the United States has not done it. I don't know whether we've ever issued U.S. bonds in any other currency, but we certainly haven't made a habit of it. And the Japanese, incidentally, which have a very high ratio of debt to GDP also have consistently borrowed in their own currency. And uh, believe me, when it's time to pay somebody back and you have a choice of paying, and, and you're forced to pay in somebody else's currency uh, versus paying in your, in your own, uh, it's, it's an entirely different proposition. Matter of fact, Charlie and I, we, we were trying to buy that bank back in Chicago. Yeah, in Chicago in the late 1960s. And this was a time of really tight money, and tight money was different then than tight money is today. I mean, it, 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 uh, tight money meant no money. And somebody, we wanted to buy this bank, and they wanted, uh, the only place we could find some money, I think was in Kuwait and dinars, wasn't it? In Kuwait and dinars. Yeah, and I thought to myself, and Charlie concurred, you know, who the hell knew? what they were going to say the value of the dinar was when we went to pay it back. <laughs> I mean, it was not something over which we had a lot of control. So we decided not to borrow the money in dinars, so even though I kind of wish we'd bought the bank. But, um, Charlie, have you got anything to say on that? No. <laughs> I do think, I do think, you know, I remember an era when we had a bipartisan foreign policy and all that, and I liked that era. And... That was the Marshall Plan, and a lot of wonderful, constructive things were done. And uh, they were generous things. Now, now it seems to me that both parties are trying to compete to see who can be the most stupid. <laughs> and they keep topping one another. Yeah. 
<laughs> you can tell Charlie is a fellow who's always fi filed an accurate income tax form. <laughs> He's not worried. Number seven. Okay, good afternoon, Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger. I'm John Gorey from Iowa City, Iowa, where I'm a happy customer of Mid-American Energy. Around 2004, Mr. Buffett, you told us of a great attention you had given to limiting Berkshire's exposure to mega-catastrophes so that one could not break Berkshire. Today, Mid-American Energy is seeking approval to build a nuclear power plant in eastern Iowa. At the same time, another utility company, Tokyo Electric and Power, faces claims that Merrill Lynch has estimated as exceeding 12 trillion yen, or $140 billion, to compensate residents and businesses that have been displaced and farmers that cannot produce. Do you believe that the bond-like return that Mid-American Energy might receive from a nuclear power plant can justify the mega-catastrophe risk that it would pose to Berkshire? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it does pose, I don't know the details of it, and Greg Abel could speak to it better than I can, but it, I, I don't think there's anything like uh, the exposure that, that you refer to. I, I think nuclear power uh, is an important part of the uh, the world's equation, really, in, 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 in dealing uh, with its problems on uh, emission. I mean, it's very long-term, because you're not going to change the installed base in any hurry. And as you know, uh, France has a very high percentage of nuclear power. And actually, 20 percent of the electricity generated in the United States comes from nuclear power. I probably am getting some of mine from we have we have at Fort Calhoun, we have a, a nuclear facility, not we, but the uh, Alma Public Power District has a nuclear facility I've actually been in. But I think, I think nuclear power uh, is important, and I think it's safe. I think that uh, uh, I have no, I, I don't think nuclear power is going to go anyplace in the United States for a while, but maybe quite a while because of the reaction to what happened in Tokyo, uh, or I mean, with Tokyo Electric Power. Uh, but uh, that doesn't change my view as to the advisability of continuing to develop nuclear power, not only in the United States, uh, but around the world. Uh, I think some people misinterpreted what I said when I was interviewed, when I said that I thought it would had a major setback in its development just because of the popular reaction to what happened in Japan. Uh, but that has not changed my view that nuclear power is important for the future of this country and the world. Charlie? Yeah, we can't be so risk averse that things that have a very tiny chance of making a big dent in one subsidiary uh, are unendurable for us. We have to have a certain reasonable amount of courage in operating this company. Yeah. We have we have pipeline. We have gas pipeline. You can dream of all kinds of worst case situations. We have to carry uh, 
toxic materials on, were required by law to carry those on the railroad. And, you know, you can picture the wrong place, the wrong time, the wrong everything. But uh, we are not bearing any risks, in my view, ever, that threaten the enterprise. I mean, that is one thing I think about all of the time. I regard myself as the chief risk officer of Berkshire. And that is not something to be delegated to a committee, in my view, at all. So I think about whether I think about derivative positions, whether I think about leverage, whether I'm thinking about uh, nuclear power plants or anything. I mean, we are not doing anything that I know of that, that uh, pressing my imagination as far as I can th threatens me losing a night's sleep over, over Berkshire's uh, well-being. Yeah, I think you could also count on any new nuclear plant Build in Iowa will be a hell of a lot safer than the ones we already have. We are learning as we go along here. Yeah. And obviously, more people, more people have lost their lives by far in in in, in coal mine uh, accidents, you know, than ever in the United States uh, have suffered no losses uh, from anything involved nuclearly. With it, with it producing 20% of the electricity used by 309 million people. And if a, a tsunami gets to Iowa, it will be a hell of a tsunami. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And our railroad won't do so well either. <laughs> Andrew? This question comes from Mary and Jim Beaumont from Springfield, Illinois. They've been Berkshire shareholders since 1971. And I should note that uh, we received several questions from some long-term shareholders along these lines. Um, and this one reads, uh, would Berkshire ever consider reinstating its shareholder-directed charitable giving program now that you have a big cash position and are urging people to give away their wealth to worthy causes? When you had that program, we were able to support many local schools and charities over the years. Yeah, I love that program, which we had for maybe 20 or so years. Charlie loved it. A lot of the shareholders loved it. And it was interesting because uh, it was a tax-efficient way to uh, let shareholders give away some money to whatever they chose, as long as it was a 501c3. Uh, and they could pick up to three charities. And some Families, for example, use it as a learning device. When they would get the form from us, they'd get their kids around the table and they'd talk about philanthropy and why they were choosing what they, they did. And uh, it, two things, well, one thing that was very interesting about it is nobody else copied it. I mean, the, the rest of corporate America was not interested in having their shareholders direct contributions. They were much more interested in having the CEO direct contributions. So it did not, it did not catch on, despite a fair amount of publicity. We always had a small backlash of sorts from people who didn't like the charities that our shareholders were choosing. So Berkshire's name was on the check. The shareholders would tell us we want $20 a share, let's say, and they own 10 shares so they can direct $200. They'd say, we want our $200 to go to more churches and synagogues actually were number one, but there were schools and there were all kinds of things. And we would always get some letters where 
Berkshire would be contributed to, say, Planned Parenthood of California, and people would say, well, we're not going to buy C's candy because Berkshire is supporting uh, Planned Parenthood in California. And uh, sometimes I would write the people a letter and tell them that when C's bought almonds or milk or anything like that, we didn't, we didn't get into the charitable preferences of the person who supplied us, but uh, it, and it never really amounted to anything. Then we bought uh, the Pampered Chef, and that was a different situation because with the Pampered Chef, we operated through 50,000-plus independent contractors. These are women, largely women, who, who uh, sometimes to supplement their income, we have we have uh, at least one in the office that a woman that that sells Pampered Chefs uh, products. Uh, sometimes as a main source of income, uh, were uh, uh, these fifty thousand were uh, independent contractors, and a campaign developed where people said that that. Uh, because Berkshire Hathaway gives money, probably primarily to pro-choice organizations, uh, and that was the direction we had other people giving them to pro-life organizations. I mean, it was, it, these were reflected the views of our shareholders, not of Berkshire management, but that they were going to boycott these independent contractors. And these were people who depended on the income, who had nothing to do with Berkshire's policies, and they were being hurt in terms of their livelihood. And in some cities, it became a radio campaign. And, some, and in some cities, uh, people regularly started interfering with the parties arranged for our Pampered Chef consultants. And it was hurting a whole lot of innocent people who had nothing to do with Berkshire's policies, who had nothing to do with Berkshire. And at that time, reluctantly, we decided to end the program. We'd, I did not. I didn't mind at all losing some C's candy business or whatever to some people, but when we start affecting individuals, most of these people are not high-income uh, individuals, and we're cutting off their livelihood because of something Berkshire is doing. It became, it, it just became apparent to me that uh, it was unfair to continue it, and reluctantly we stopped it. And uh, I think it's too bad. We Charlie. don't want the parent company involved in distracting arguments about the social issues of the times. Well, we certainly don't want it where it affects yeah. people who are just bystanders, basically, who, are, who have counted on us over the years to, to uh, uh, work with them. And uh, it was literally affecting the income of thousands, primarily women, uh, concentrated in certain communities around uh, the country. Okay. But a lot of stock, Berkshire stock is given away every year. It isn't like we've lost the flow of charity totally. No, a huge amount is given away. Uh, partly that's because Charlie and I started our partnerships back in the 50s and 60s, and we've got a number of partners that are now in their 80s, and, and uh, some of them have given away some exceptional amounts of money. You had a question earlier from Dick Holland, for example, and Dick Holland, uh, it's a matter, I don't think it's a matter of record as the exact numbers, but he's given away huge amounts of money uh, uh, over the years and continues to, and we've got, we've got dozens like that 
that I would say are going to end up giving back 90% or more of, of all the money they've, they've made in Berkshire. Okay. Number eight. Tanya Laneva, Boston, Massachusetts. When you think about long-term cash flows, do you try to forecast growth or do you just think about certainty? If you have an indestructible company like Coca-Cola or Burlington Northern, do you try to estimate growth? Well, we think, are, are you finished on that? Yes, yeah. thank you. Uh, we, growth is part of the investment equation. And obviously we love profitable growth. So if, if we would love to figure out a way to uh, say, take a C's candy to move it geographically uh, uh, into new areas, uh, all kinds of things. I mean, we're, if we could find areas for growth with C's, it would be likely to be very, very profitable. If Coca-Cola, which is in 200 countries, I mean, they have pursued that policy successfully now for 125 years. And some products travel way better than others. But when we look at a business, and we're looking out in the future, obviously if we see growth in that picture and it's growth worth, which is, produces a high return on incremental capital involved, we love it. But we do not rule out companies where we think there'll be little or no growth if the price is attractive uh, relative to the earning power. Uh, you know, there will be some growth over time in something like lubricants, you know, at, at Lubrizol, but it won't be dramatic growth. And would we love it if it, you know, if it were going to grow 10% a year in units or something of the sort? Sure, but it isn't. That's not going to happen. Uh, so it's a it's a factor in every investment decision because we're really looking out to the future as to future earning power, but also future capital requirements. And we we think plenty about whether any business we go into is likely to grow profitably. And sometimes we're right and sometimes we're wrong. But we don't rule out companies that have very slow growth uh, or, or no growth uh, possibilities. Charlie? Yeah, well, the interesting thing is that in our country, the business schools teach people to make these projections way in the future. And they program these computers to grind these projections out. And then they use them in their business decision making, et cetera, et cetera. I've always regarded those projections as doing more harm than good. And Warren has never prepared one that I know of. And where an investment banker prepares one, we tend to throw them aside without reading them. We and turn them upside down, actually. What? <laughs> we turn them upside down. Yeah, yeah. And I think an enormous false precision gets into things when you program computers to make forward projections for a long period of time. We make rough projections in our head all the time. Sure. And we don't do any of those formal projections because the fact that they're there in paper and came out of a computer makes some people think they must be significant. I really think they do more damage than they do good. When we bought Scott Fetzer, which was back in about 1985, it had been shopped by First Boston to more than 30 parties. They never got around to calling us. So after shopping into 30 parties, Scott Fetzer finally was working on a 
deal uh, with an ESOP after something else had fallen through. I forget the exact details. And I sent a letter to Ralph Shea. I'd read about it in the paper. I never met him, never talked to the guy. But I sent him a letter. I figured I'd gamble 21 cents or whatever the first class rate was then. And I said, we'll pay $60 a share if you like the idea. I'll meet you in Chicago Sunday. And if you don't like the idea, tear up the letter. So that took place, and Ralph met me. And we made the deal. And we paid the $60 a share or whatever it was. And Charlie and I went back to sign up the deal. And the fellow from First Boston was there. And he was a little abashed since he had not sent us, uh, contacted us at all when they were looking for something. But naturally, he had a contract that called for a few million dollars of commission, even though he not bothered to ever contact us. And we made the deal by ourselves. So in a, in a moment of, of exuberance, he, while he was collecting his few million dollars, he said to Charlie, he said, well, we prepared this book in connection with Scott Fetcher, and since you're paying us a couple million dollars and have gotten nothing so far, he said, he said, maybe you would like to have this book. And Charlie, with his usual tax, said, I'll pay you two million dollars if you don't show me the book. <laughs> it, it, and I should mention, uh, this will, in, in, connection, in connection with Lubrizol, Dave Sokol met James Hambrick, I think on, on whatever it was, January uh, 25th or whatever the date, and, and he, uh, uh, Lubrizol had already made projections publicly out to 2013. And Dave told me that they had, they, that James had also given him some projections, I guess, out to 2015 or something, and did I want to see him? And I told him no, you know, I mean, it, I don't, I don't want to look at the other fellow's projections. I've never seen a projection from an investment banker that didn't show the earnings going up over time. And believe me, the earnings don't always go up over time. So it just, you know, it's the old story. Don't ask the barber whether you need a haircut. You know, I mean, you, you do not want to ask an investment banker what he thinks the earnings are going to be in five years of something he's trying to sell. So I pay no attention to that, that sort of thing. But we do, as Charlie says, we are doing projections in our head, obviously when we look at a business. I mean, we, when we look at any company to buy or any stock to buy, we are thinking in our mind, we're, 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 we've got a model in our mind of what that place is likely to look at, like over some period of years. And then we also have some model in our mind of how far off we can be. I mean, there's some things we can be way off on, there's other things we, we're likely to be in a fair, fairly narrow range on. So all that is taking place. But we sure don't want to listen to anybody else's projections. For those of you who are about to enter business school or who are there, I recommend you learn to do it our way, but at least until you're out of school, you have to pretend to do it their way. <laughs> okay, Carol. On Berkshire's quarterly 13F filings with the SEC, three stocks are held only by the entity recorded on the form as Warren E. Buffett and not by a Berkshire subsidiary company. Please, please clear up some confusion on this matter. Are these holdings your own personal investments outside of Berkshire, or do they belong to Berkshire Hathaway? Well, you'd have to tell me what the names are. Uh, unfortunately, the questioner didn't include yeah. those. But these are the three, I think, that are that say Warren E. Buffett is the owner? Yeah. Well, Mark Hamburg 
prepares those forms. Mark, do you have a microphone that you can? You could. Uh, I think. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I, I, those are those are uh, securities that are owned by certain employee benefit plans, and so that 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 Warren is directed into those plans, but it doesn't. It, they're not owned by Warren, or there's no indication that they're owned by Warren. Warren's part of the filing because he's considered to be a controlling shareholder of Berkshire. So every security listed on there shows Warren is one of the one of the owners. Yeah. Do we we file stocks owned by pension plans? Do we uh, to the extent that you direct have direct? I got you. Him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't. I don't think I. Uh, well. Mark knows the rules on it better than I do. And, uh, uh, I own very, very few securities. That, uh, uh, I really spend my time thinking about Berkshire. So I've, I've got a lot of the, very, of the very security I've been telling you not to buy, <laughs> which is government bonds. But, but that's not because it's a good investment. It's, just, it's a place to have some money and forget about it, and I'll work on Berkshire. Uh, Area nine. Uh, Mr. Buffett, Mr. Munger, it's an honor and a pleasure. Um, my name is Ben Anderson. I'm from Los Angeles. Uh, when you're looking at an investment in China, where the uh, business culture is a lot different, a lot different than it is here in the U.S., and successful business practices are again very different than they are here, you know, what are the characteristics you look for? when placing an investment in that company, and is that any different than the general principles at Berkshire? It's, we follow the same principles, but we recognize that we know less about tax laws, about customs, about attitudes towards shareholders anytime we get outside the United States than we know in the United States. Now, to varying degrees, uh, we weigh in that uncertainty. At the time I bought PetroChina stock, which I don't know, it was probably 2003 or thereabouts, it was extraordinarily cheap in relation to any calculation of reserves or refining capacity or cash flow or you name it. And at the same time, uh, Yukos in Russia was similarly very, very cheap. And they were both huge. And you know, I am no geopolitical expert or anything of the sort, but I decided I was more comfortable buying PetroChina than I was buying Yukos. Now, was I as comfortable buying PetroChina as I would have been buying, you know, some domestic company of similar size? No, because I don't know as much, I didn't know then, and I don't know as much now about all the intricacies of, of Chinese tax law and what the policies might be. But but I was fairly impressed, quite impressed, when I read the report of PetroChina. For one thing, they said they were going to pay out 45% of, as I remember, 45% of their earnings and dividends. That's more than any company in the oil company in the United States would tell me. So I regarded that as a plus and an indication of, of intent that I thought would be fulfilled, and it has been fulfilled. So we do make, we do make allowances for our lack of understanding uh, as well uh, as we might in the United States, uh, various key factors. 
but the basic principles of trying to value the business, trying to find managements in which we have confidence in both their ability and integrity, and then finding an attractive purchase price, those principles apply wherever in the world we, we would be investing. Charlie? Well, we make so few investments in China that trying to draw general lessons from us would be hard. It reminds me of the time a professor went west for the summer and he came back to his faculty and he said, I've learned that Indians always walk single file. And they said, how did you figure that out? And he said, I saw one and he did. How do we get from there to China? Well, we only had a couple of things in China that were there like the one Indian. You can't draw general lessons from no. our... But, but we're willing to look tomorrow. I mean, obviously, if we, if we, got, if we had a call on some... That would be a significant size investment because we, it just doesn't make any sense for us to look at things we can just put a couple hundred million dollars in. But, we, you know, I love the idea of looking at, at, at various ideas. I mean, I, I find it a fascinating game to hear about companies or businesses that uh, are new to me. And the problem now is that the universe has gotten much smaller because of our, of our size. Uh, but we welcome a call from a lot of countries. There's, a, there's some countries that are just too small. They're not going to have businesses that could move the needle at a place like Berkshire, and, and so th those are off the list. But China has at least one private company that makes over $3 billion a year after taxes. There's some big things out there. I'll get the name from him later, but I don't want you to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Becky? <clears throat> uh, this question comes from Ed Schmidt in Alaska. He's asking about Berkshire's cash. He writes, where is that money held? All in treasury bills or notes? If so, what will happen in June when the biggest buyer, the Fed, quits buying? Where is all that money on the sidelines? Is it under the mattress we saw two years ago? I don't see how any significant amount of money can be in banks that aren't paying interest, corporate bonds that are risky and not paying much interest, or government bonds that seem less and less sound as each day passes. Well, he's certainly right that all the choices are lousy for short-term money now. but. We don't play around with short-term money. So uh, we did not own commercial paper in 2008 before problems occurred. We did not own money market funds. I, when I say we, we didn't own them, we make, there may be small amounts at various subsidiaries. But in terms of the big money, which we run out of Berkshire, <clears throat> we basically keep it in treasuries. And uh, uh, we get paid virtually nothing now for it, and uh, that's irritating. But the last thing in the world we would do <clears throat> at Berkshire is to try and get five or 10 or 20 or 30 basis points more by going into some other things with this, with, with our short-term money. It, it is a parking place, it's an unattractive parking place, but it's a parking place where we, we know we'll get our car back when we want it. And uh, uh, you know, when we need, Certainly the case in, 19, in September of, 19, of 2008, we had committed for some time to put $6.5 billion in, in uh, Wrigley when the Mars 
Wrigley deal occurred. And we certainly didn't contemplate at the time we made that commitment, which was probably in the summer, uh, that the events would take place like they did in September. And, uh, but we had the money. I knew I had to show up with six and a half billion dollars. I think it was on October 6th. And, you know, I had to show up. And <laughs> I couldn't, couldn't show up with a money market fund or some commercial paper or anything of the sort. I had to show up with cash. And the only thing I feel, virtually the only thing I feel good about in terms of having large amounts of ready cash is treasury bills. And that's where we've got, if you look at our, our March 31st statement, I think you'll see 38 million. And overwhelmingly that will be in, in uh, treasuries. Charlie? Well, of course, I've watched a lot of people struggle who thought it was their duty in life to get an extra 10 basis points on the short-term money. I think it's really stupid to try and maximize returns on short-term money if you're not opportunistic game the way we are, where we want to suddenly deploy money. Some of those pipelines we bought, they came for sale on Saturday and we had to close on Monday or something. Yeah. yeah we bought we don't one want to fool around with some dubious instrument when we had sudden needs for money like that. We bought one pipeline uh, where the seller uh, was worried about going bankrupt uh, the following week. And there's a hard Scott Rodino clearance required for the FTC, and they needed the money right away. And we actually, I wrote a letter, as I remember, to the FTC, and I said that we will do whatever you tell us to do uh, later on. You can look at this all you want. We'll give you all the data you want. And if you tell us, you know, to, uh, to unwind the deal, whatever you tell us, we will do. But these guys need the money. And uh, so we closed it earlier. And uh, our ability to come up with cash when people need it and when the rest of the world is petrified for some reason, uh, has enabled several deals to get done. And we don't know whether that, that could happen tomorrow. I mean, you know, if, if uh, you know, uh, Ben Bernanke runs off to South America with Paris Hilton or something, I mean, who knows, who knows what'll happen, you know? And we want to be able, at that moment, to have our check clear. So uh, we, we figure we never know what tomorrow will bring. Uh, although it won't bring that, I want to make Leave that off the transcribed part of the report. The, but we are, when somebody comes to us and they say, we need a deal right now, we can do it. And they know we can do it. And it can be big. It just has to be attractive. Okay, area 10. Hi, Warren. Hi, Charlie. Thank you very much for taking the time to uh, have a terrific shareholders meeting. Uh, four years ago, uh, we announced that we're naming our son after you, so we're happy to say hi uh, to both you and uh, Charlie. Uh, Charlie, since Berkshire bought Wesco, we wanted to see if you can take some time to host a meeting of your own. Uh, it could be anywhere, anytime. We're going to do that. Great. 
We won't call it a West Coast meeting. We'll call it an afternoon with Charlie. Great. It's only for hardcore addicts. <laughs> uh, Warren, MidAmerican Energy is investing over a billion dollars in wind power. How do you feel about wind power as a source of renewable energy and its economics? Will this scale of investment continue, and what type of returns do you expect uh, to come from wind power? Yeah, it's, it's terrific, but wind power is terrific, but only when the wind blows. Um, the wind blows about, as I remember, about 35% of the time in Iowa. So you never can count on wind power, obviously, for your base load. Uh, and, you know, that is a real limitation. On the other hand, wind power, uh, you know, is basically, I, I guess, the cleanest energy you can come up with, except for the fact that it can't be relied on. Uh, it, the economics only make sense uh, with a incentive credit, tax credit provided by the federal government, which they've been doing for a considerable period of time. Um, it does not, standing on their own, the investment will not return uh, anything like an adequate return on capital. So there is a tax credit. Your government has made a decision that it wants to subsidize, in effect, uh, wind power. And Iowa has been, Iowa's a good wind state. Uh, this whole central belt is good, and the uh, uh, central part of the country is good. Uh, so it's made sense to locate uh, a lot of megawatts. Uh, of generating capacity in Iowa, and we have more under construction now, and and I think we're now, uh, I think, number one in the country in, 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 in respect to wind power. So we'll be doing more. It is dependent uh, in terms of the price you can get, the percentage of the time that your generating capacity actually gets used and everything. It only makes sense uh, with the tax credits and one thing that is kind of interesting, uh, one of the assets of Berkshire is that it pays a lot of taxes. Uh, that doesn't sound like much of an asset, but in these days, a lot of utilities, when you get both 100% depreciation, which has been put in now by the federal government for a short period of time, uh, and you get these sort of tax credits on, on wind, they, they really don't have the tax-paying capacity to be able to use uh, the tax credits. So they, they are in a different position than Berkshire, which pays a lot of taxes. We've, we've probably paid something like 2% of all the corporate taxes in the United States, maybe over the last five years. I want to check that, but it's not, that's not, I don't think that's way off. Uh, so we have a lot of taxpaying capacity. We can use it to build more wind projects. Um, and I think it's very likely we will continue to do it. It, it, helps, it helps our Iowa customers uh, because these projects are successful. It's enabled us to keep rates, among other things, it, uh, reasons. It, it's helped to keep rates absolutely unchanged uh, now for more than a decade, which is very unusual among electric utilities in the, in, in the United States. Charlie? No, I've got nothing to add. 
Andrew? Well, this is not a David Sokol question, but it, but it relates to him. It's uh -huh. actually a NetJets question. Uh, this shareholder asks, I was struck by your statement when you praised Sokol for, quote, having resurrected an operation that was destined for bankruptcy. This really got my attention because I don't recall you or Berkshire Hathaway uh, saying earlier that NetJets was on the verge of bankruptcy at the time that his predecessor, uh, Richard Santulli, had stepped down. In fact, at the time, the company seemed to give the impression he was dealing with a few short-term problems, but that it was fundamentally sound. In truth, how close was it to bankruptcy? And if that was the case, why didn't you tell us? Yeah. And finally, was it ethical for NetJets to be asking prospective clients to part with their money at a time when it was, in the eyes of its main shareholder, quote, destined for bankruptcy? Yeah. I think I said it was... Maybe we can find the exact words here, but I think I said it was destined for bankruptcy absent the fact that Berkshire Hathaway owned it, and if it had been a standalone entity. And Berkshire never had any intent, never would have had any intent of any kind to bankrupt uh, NetJets. But if it had been owned as a standalone by somebody else, uh, the, or the public, uh, it, that's, that's what would have happened to it. Uh, with Berkshire's ownership, Berkshire has had two insurance companies that would have gone bankrupt as standalone insurance companies. Uh, and we, it never crossed our mind that we would let them do it. So we put money into companies that were bankrupt, that Berkshire owned to make, to make them whole, basically. And essentially, we were doing the same thing with NetJets when we put in up the, we got it up to 1.9 billion, but uh, NetJets, in my opinion, uh, well, it would have been bankrupt. It, 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 it absent some, somebody like Berkshire owning it. Uh, I'm almost positive that, that, uh, that I said that, that absent, absent Berkshire's ownership or some words to that effect. Uh, let's see if I can find it. Maybe Charlie can be commenting while I'm looking for this. In any event, <laughs> well, I'm not finding it immediately where I even discussed it, but I, I know I, I talked about it on the bankruptcy thing, but I also know that I, I conditioned it on not being owned by Berkshire. Charlie? No comment. No comment. <laughs> now, we've pointed that out to Standard and Poor's and Moody's. We look at Berkshire has a lot of different companies, but we feel that it's one entity and, and you know, Moody's or Standard Poor's has to look at each one and separately and all of that. But, but Charlie and I did not, have not been running this business to walk away from some company. We had one in Louisiana, Southern Casualty, and we had another one in Chicago, both of which uh, if left to their own devices, uh, would have gone bankrupt, and we didn't, we didn't even think about not making them whole. Area 11. Good afternoon. My name is Christopher David. I'm an entrepreneur from Arlington, Virginia. My question is about the youth. Um, I work with a lot of high school and college students and recent graduates who are facing a job market with 20% youth in, in unemployment um, and at the same time one of the most favorable entrepreneurial environments. It's easy, easier than ever to start a business or get involved with a startup. So considering that these kids are 
politically savvy, they like studying economics, they're, they're brilliant, and they're willing to learn, what advice can you give them from an investment perspective that could help them chart their own course as opposed to get a nine-to-five job? Well, the main thing you could do, and people do it different ways. I used to do it by doing a lot of reading. I was practically lived at the Omaha Public Library for three or four years and pre, uh, when I was nine or 10 or 11. I mean, anything you do to improve your own skills, uh, you know, you never know where it's going to pay off later on. I only, I have one diploma hanging in my office and I, I got a couple of others, but the one diploma I have hanging up there is one I got from a Dale Carnegie course, which cost me a hundred bucks back in 1951, uh, and I can't, it's incalculable how much value I got from that $100. There's nothing like working to improve your own skills, and I would say communication skills are the first area I would work on to enhance your value throughout life, no matter what you do. I mean, if I had stayed in the same position I was, I was in, in terms of communicating uh, back in 1950 or 51, my, my life would have turned out differently. I mean, I, I, I started selling securities, and if you can't talk to people, you've got a real problem selling securities. The, uh, so I, you know, I think people, I think the, if you get lucky, you find your passion early on. But you want to you work at something you're passionate about, and then you want to work to improve your skills in that. And I think if you, if you do both of those things, I think you're, you're, likely to, you're likely to do very well. Charlie? Yeah, I think economics is a really tough subject. And I think it's easy to teach the basic microeconomics and certain of the basic ideas, but the minute it gets into the full range of complexity, you have the difficulty that the experts disagree. So I don't think I would hurry if I were trying to learn something into the parts of the fields where none of the experts can agree among themselves. I would master the easy stuff first. Yeah, I don't think, yeah, I, I would not advise taking lots of courses in economics to somebody going to uh, school. I'm uh, just trying to think back. It's been a long time since I took my economics courses at Wharton, but I don't regard them as the ones that push me forward in any significant way. Carol? Um, question from John Brandt. Does uh, Berkshire's equity ownership in Munich and Swiss Re reduce the amount of catastrophe-exposed insurance business you are willing to write directly? If so, assume that prices return to being attractive. Would you then limit the quantity of other reinsurance stocks you buy so that you could do more direct business? Yeah. We have invested in Munich and Swiss Re uh, less than, uh, well, let's see what it would be. Uh, uh, it's, le it's less than $4 billion. So we're talking 2.5% of our, our net worth. Uh, so those, 
those investments in aggregate are not of a magnitude that would cause me to change at all what we're willing to do, uh, the risks we're willing to bear uh, uh, in the reinsurance field. We're, we're way below uh, sort of capacity uh, in terms of risk that we will tolerate in insurance. I mean, we, I put in the report, you know, I expect our normal earning power to be in the $17 billion something pre-tax range. Well, that is, that's so unlike any other reinsurance company in the world. You know, we, re, we went through the worst quarter in reinsurance history except for Katrina's quarter, you know, and we, we, uh, we end up earning, you know, very substantial sums. So uh, those investments are no constraint at all on our willingness to write insurance. We would love to have a lot more attractive in reinsurance business on the books. We just, we just can't find it at prices that we think are commensurate with the risk, but it's not because of an aversion to risk overall. Charlie? Yeah, it's, you know, insurance and particularly reinsurance, it's not that easy a business. It's taken you a long time to, to do as well as you do, and if it weren't for Ajit, why, we wouldn't, it would be a lot smaller business. Well, it should be pointed out, we really didn't succeed at all in the reinsurance business in the first 15 years. We, yeah. We started in reinsurance around 1970, and we had a fellow that I thought the world of running at George Young, but net, counting the value of float, uh, it was not a good business for us for 15 years until Ajit came along. It is not an easy business. It looks easy most of the time. I mean, most That's of the- That's the trouble with it. It <laughs> yeah. looks easier than it is. It looks way easier than it is. And, and you know, it's like having a pair of dice and, and uh, you know, accepting uh, bets on box cards or something like that, and, and you know, it's gonna come up once at 36 times, so you can win a lot of bets by giving the wrong odds, but, but if you keep doing it long enough, you lose a lot of money. And so these infrequent events, uh, you better have factored in to your pricing uh, and, and not fool yourself by whether you make money in a given year or two years or even three or four years. And, and most people have a little trouble with that, and we had a little trouble with it for about 15 years. <laughs> and incidentally, the investment bankers of the world, now that they trade so much for their own account in derivatives, they have sold some of these products where most of the time the customer wins, but when the customer loses, he really loses big. In other words, they're smarter than the customers, and they have caused some of the most horrendous losses to ordinary businessmen. It happened in Korea, it happened in Mexico, it happened. Just beware the salesman who's selling a new derivative product. Or an old one. Uh, <laughs> an old one, too. <laughs> yeah, but the new ones are worse. Yeah. Okay, area 12. Hi, my name is Bottle Pondy. I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, questions about Todd Combs, the young man money manager you hired late last year. For Mr. Munger, uh, 
I understand you introduced him to Berkshire. Could you talk a little bit about that, uh, how that relationship started, and how, as we as shareholders, are we going to be able to assess his progress? Well, I hate doing this because I may get more letters than I want. <laughs> but he sent me a letter. That's how it happened. It was like Warren's letter to the guy at uh, Ralph Shea. And at any rate, I had a meal with him, and I called Warren and said, I think this is the guy you should talk to. We have a very complicated business and very elaborate procedures, as you can tell. <laughs> and his results will be known over a five-year period or something. I mean, you cannot judge an investor uh, by what they do in six months or, or a year. At, uh, Todd has the advantage that he's been thinking about financial companies like Berkshire for a great many years. That's useful for us to have around. And as we put in the annual report, it's more likely than not, but not a sure thing, that over time we have more than one investment manager. You know, there's a lot of money at Berkshire to be managed, and uh, uh, it would not, not be a bad idea, but we have to find the right people, and the right people just does not mean a given IQ or a given past record. It means a lot of things. And if we end up with two or three, you know, that, that's a plus. But, but it's not, we don't mandate that sort of a result. Becky? Um, this question comes in from Scott Wilkin. In he's from Chicago, but he's sitting in the audience right now. Uh, Johnson & Johnson is one of Berkshire's biggest holdings, and he asks, uh, for your thoughts, Warren, on Johnson & Johnson's re recent acquisition of Synthes for $21 billion. You were quite outspoken in your opposition to Kraft's deal for Cadbury, particularly because of their use of stock. J&J's deal also is primarily with stock, and do you support this deal? Yeah, I have not talked to anybody in the Johnson & Johnson management, and I have no specific n knowledge of the, of the company, but basically I would like the deal a whole lot better if it was all for cash. The idea, when the management trades away, I think this deal is about two-thirds stock, uh, roughly, and one-third cash. And Johnson & Johnson has plenty of ability to pay cash for a $22 billion deal, and and when they trade away their present businesses for some other business, they're either saying their, their own businesses are pretty fully valued, or they're saying the guy is making a hell of a mistake that's selling to them. And uh, so I would, like I say, if it was all for cash, I would like it a lot better. And I think that it is by using a lot of stock for a deal like this, that it, it, it certainly, you can, you can draw the inference that J&J &J is not valuing its own businesses, you know, as attractively as uh, uh, you might think they should be evaluated. And uh, if you, you use your own company stock to pay 20% or more more than market for some other company, and, you know, there probably are not a lot of synergies involved or anything in the management. There, there may be some, but there's usually some offsets, too. Uh, well, like I said, I would have much preferred it if they'd done it for cash. Charlie? Yeah, you also have the disadvantage in reviewing that, that you know a hell of a lot more about chocolate and pizza than you know about medical devices. 
You think I know more about chocolate? Well, you, <laughs> but, but at craft, at I mean, you're talking about businesses that Warren knew a lot about, and neither of us knows much about medical devices. Yeah, the pizza business has done pretty well since it was sold by Kraft. <laughs> the, uh, we go to 13 in the other room. Hi, um, I'm Glenn Tung from New York. Uh, first off, thank you for a terrific day. Um, my question deals with acquisitions. Pre-Lubrizol, we estimated Berkshire's year-end 2011 cash balance could approach $60 billion. I believe you commented recently on an elephant that you thought was too big. What is your acquisition appetite? What size is too big? Has the phone been ringing lately? And what, if anything, can we as shareholders do to help? I got through college answering fewer questions than that, but the, uh, <laughs> but anything you can do to help, I appreciate, uh, Glenn. Um, the, you know, it's hard to name a precise figure. Uh, this one, you know, was way too, big except unless we used a lot of stock, which like I say, we wouldn't do. Uh, uh, our appetite is always there. We are not going to borrow a lot of money. Uh, we're not gonna issue shares, except perhaps in some minor amount to make a deal that couldn't get, get made otherwise. Uh, but, and we obviously we'll never sell a business to buy some other business. So, you know, our, our, our cash balances will tend to build month to month unless we do something. And we can and will sell some portfolio securities. Uh, but doing Lubrizol requires close to $9 billion of cash. And obviously we could, we could do another one of that size. In fact, we're looking at a couple but they're no more than a gleam in the eye, but they would take sums roughly similar to Lubrizol, and you know we would be comfortable uh, doing those, and they would add significant, significantly to Berkshire's earning parts. They're worth doing, uh, but we couldn't, we can't do an, we can't do a really, a really big elephant now, and and we won't. You know, we won't stretch. We never, we, we've never, uh, we've never really taken any, any risks uh, because we don't need to, and we will not trade something that that we have and need for something that we don't have and don't need, even if we, we kind of like to have it. Charlie. Well, I, I certainly agree with all that. We are very reluctant to issue shares. And in that, we're different from most places. I have a friend that sold out to a socialist country, and they issued shares in a controlled corporation. And the socialist executive said, isn't this wonderful? We're getting this business for nothing. Well, some people really have that. And of course, there are some companies and we talked about the wave that took place in the late 60s, but periodically, when the, certainly it happened during the internet period, when companies just couldn't issue shares fast enough because they were basically were trading confetti for real assets. And, and that, is a, that is a business model that has been applied successfully for 
some periods of time by certain companies in the past. It usually ends in some kind of a fiasco, but, well, I shouldn't say it usually does, but it, it runs out of gas at some point. Uh, but, you know, essentially we've, we've never been in that game. Uh, we hate issuing shares. Uh, and the idea of selling our, when we issue shares, we're, we're divesting ourselves of a portion of every wonderful business we have, from Geico to Iscar to you name it. And we don't like doing that. We like owning those businesses. We like to own more of them. We, we uh, you know, we, we have a deal, for example, on Marmon where we bought some more of it this, this year and we will buy the rest of it in a few more years and we feel good about that. We pay a, a fair price for it, but we get a business we know, a management we like, and, and that's really what we'd like to be, continue doing at Berkshire. In fact, we will continue doing it. Andrew? This question comes from Larry Patowski, uh, who's a longtime shareholder, I think he's in the audience, from the Good Haven Fund. He, he asks, over the years, you built or acquired a significant number of businesses that are related to the residential and commercial real estate markets, including such segments as brokerage servicing, insulation, carpeting, construction products, paint, and furniture. Berkshire's ownership of these businesses would seem to give you a unique window through which to view current conditions. Could you give us some insight into the current state of the housing and commercial real estate market and what we might expect to see in these businesses over, and now this is maybe a long shot, over the next decade? Oh, well. The, the immediate situation is it's terrible. It's been flatlined now for a long time, and it affects Shaw, it affects, it affects MyTech, it affects, it affects uh, Acme Brick, it affects Johns Manville, it affects our home services operation, and, and there has been no bounce uh, at all, but you see that in the in the housing start figures too. I mean, I'm not telling you anything that you don't see, except I see it with pain as we <laughs> I look at the monthly earnings figures. But those are good businesses. And as I mentioned in the annual report, we, we bought a, the largest brick operation in Alabama. And I think Alabama uses more brick per capita than any state in the union, but that doesn't mean much currently because nobody's using any brick to speak of. But we bought it, we wrote a check for cash, and. We like improving our position. MyTech has bought operations. Shaw is spending a couple hundred million dollars this year, partly because of a change in the nature of the carpet uh, business. Uh, uh, this country, over time, will build houses at a rate that uh, overall and in total commensurate with household growth. And I think we're going to see plenty of household growth uh, in future decades, and I think that our companies are well positioned to make significant money when we get to a normalized level of, of home building. I said in the annual report I thought it would, we would be seeing the upswing by year end. I've seen nothing since I wrote the annual report that makes it look like I'm certain to be correct or anything. There's been no movement that I've seen so far in the, in the, in the two months since I wrote the report. I would think it would start occurring by then, but if it doesn't, you know, it may be a year later. Uh, uh, I don't think anybody knows the answer on that. If I had to bet one way or the other, though, I think it will be turning up uh, by year end. It really isn't that important to us. When I made the decision to buy the brick company in Alabama, it was not because I thought brick was gonna turn in two months or six months 
or a year. I thought that over time, being a very important brick manufacturer and distributor in Alabama, adjacent to our strong operation in Texas, uh, would be a, uh, a good investment at the price that we paid. And, and uh, I feel good about the decision, but I won't feel good about our brick results in the next six months, I can be sure of that. Charlie? Well, one advantage of buying these very cyclical businesses is a lot of people don't like them. And what difference does it make to us if the earnings average, say, 300 million a year, if it comes in in a very lumpy fashion? In the big scheme of things, what do we care if it's lumpy, as long as it's a good business? And we have an advantage on that stuff. Nobody else was bidding for a brick plant in Alabama with no customers to speak of. <laughs> we'll be there if you need brick in Alabama. The, uh, you know, Seize Candy, a wonderful business, loses money roughly eight months of the year. You know, now it just so happens we know the seasonal pattern, so we don't worry in July that somehow Christmas won't come. You know, we've got a couple thousand years on our side. So the, but that's, per, you know, that's easy to see. If you just looked at one month of, of C's earnings or looked at one quarter, you think, what, the, what are these guys doing in this business? Now, obviously, cyclical businesses, you know, are not going to be the, behave exactly the same as seasonal businesses. But why look at it any differently? I mean, if you take the next 20 years, you know, there will be you know, three or four terrible years for residential housing, and there'll be a lot of them that are, are pretty good, and there'll be a few that are terrific. And I don't know the order in which they're going to appear, but I know if I can buy the assets cheap enough to participate in those 20 years, that we'll do okay over that time. So that's why we're in the brick business. Now, let's see. Yeah, we're at 3.30, so we will adjourn for about five minutes, and then we will conduct the business meeting of Berkshire Hathaway, and we can turn the lights up and we'll rejoin you in just a couple of minutes. Uh -huh. Okay, if you'll settle down, we'll conduct a little business. This morning, I introduced uh, the Berkshire Hathaway directors that are present. Also with us today are partners in the firm of Deloitte & Touche, our auditors. They are available to respond to appropriate questions you might have concerning their firm's audit of the accounts of Berkshire. Forrest Crutter is secretary of Berkshire. He will make a written record of the proceedings. Becky Amick has been appointed inspector of elections at this meeting. She will certify to the count of votes cast in the election for directors and the motions voted upon at this meeting. The named proxy holders for this meeting are Walter Scott and Mark Hamburg. Does the secretary have a report of the number of Berkshire shares outstanding entitled to vote and represented at the meeting? Yes, I do. As indicated in the proxy statement that accompanied the notice of this meeting that was sent to all shareholders of record on March 2, 2011, being the record date for this meeting, there were 942,559 shares of Class A Berkshire Hathaway common stock outstanding, with each share entitled to one vote on motions considered at the meeting, and 
59,055,810 shares of Class B Berkshire Hathaway common stock outstanding, with each share entitled to one ten thousandth of one vote on motions considered at the meeting. Of that number, 663,042 Class A shares and 659,697,109 Class B shares are represented at this meeting by proxies returned through Thursday evening, April 28th. Thank you. That number represents a quorum, and we will therefore directly proceed with the meeting. The first order of business will be a reading of the minutes of the last meeting of shareholders. I recognize Mr. Walter Scott, who will place a motion before the meeting. I move that the reading of the minutes of the last meeting of the shareholders be dispensed with and the minutes be approved. Do I hear a second? The motion has been moved and seconded. Are there any comments or questions? We will vote on this motion by voice vote. All those in favor say aye. aye. Opposed? The motion is carried. The next item of business is to elect directors. If a shareholder is present who wishes to withdraw a proxy previously sent in and vote in person on the election of directors, you may do so. Also, if any shareholder that is present has not turned in a proxy and desires a ballot in order to vote in person, you may do so. If you wish to do this, please identify yourself to one of the meeting officials in the aisles who will furnish a ballot to you. I recognize Mr. Walter Scott to place a motion before the meeting with respect to election of directors. I move the Warren Buffett, Charles Munger, Howard Buffett, Stephen Burke, Susan Decker, William Gates, David Gottesman, Charlotte Guyman, Don Keogh, Tom Murphy, Ron Olson, and Walter Scott be elected as directors. Is there a second? It has been moved and seconded that Warren Buffett, Charles Munger, Howard Buffett, Stephen Burke, Susan Decker, William Gates, David Gottesman, Charlotte Guyman, Donald Keogh, Thomas Murphy, Ronald Olson, and Walter Scott be elected as directors. Are there any other nominations? Is there any discussion? The nominations are ready to be acted upon. If there are any shareholders voting in person, they should now mark their ballots on the election of directors and allow the, ba the ballots to be delivered to the inspector of elections. Ms. Amick, when you are ready, you may give your report. My report is ready. The ballot of the proxy holders in response to proxies that were received through last Thursday evening cast not less than 701,770 votes for each nominee. That number far exceeds a majority of the number of the total votes of all Class A and Class B shares outstanding. The certification required by Delaware law of the precise count of the votes will be given to the secretary to be placed with the minutes of this meeting. Thank you, Ms. Amick. Warren Buffett, Charles Munger, Howard Buffett, Stephen Burke, Susan Decker, William Gates, David Gottesman, Charlotte Guyman, Donald Keogh, Thomas Murphy, Ronald Olson, and Walter Scott have been elected as directors. The next item on the agenda is an advisory vote on the compensation of Berkshire Hathaway's executive officers. I recognize Mr. Walter Scott to place a motion before the meeting on this item. I move that the shareholders of the company approve on an advisory basis the compensation paid to the company's named executive officers as disclosed pursuant to item 402 of Regulation SK, including compensation, discussion, and analysis. The accompanying compensation tables and related narrative discussion in the company's 2011 annual meeting proxy statement. Is there a second? It has been moved and seconded that the shareholders of the company approve on an advisory basis 
the compensation paid to the company's named executive officers. Is there any discussion? The motion is ready to be acted upon. If there are any shareholders voting in person, they should now mark their ballots on the motion and allow the ballots to be delivered to the Inspector of Elections. Ms. Amick, when you are ready, you may give your report. My report is ready. The ballot of the proxy holders in response to proxies that were received through last Thursday evening cast not less than 720,883 votes to approve on an advisory basis the compensation paid to the company's named executive officers. That number far exceeds a majority of the number of the total votes of all Class A and Class B shares outstanding. The certification required by Delaware law of the precise count of the votes will be given to the secretary to be placed with the minutes of this meeting. Thank you, Ms. Amick. The motion to approve on an advisory basis the compensation paid to the company's named executive officers has passed. The next item is an advisory vote on the frequency of a shareholder advisory vote on compensation of named executive officers. I recognize Mr. Walter Scott to place a motion before the meeting with respect to this item. I move that the shareholders of the company determine on an advisory basis the frequency, whether annual, biennial, or triennial, with which they shall have an advisory vote, vote on the compensation the company's named executive officers set forth in the company's proxy statement. Is there a second? It has been moved and seconded that the shareholders of the company determine the frequency with which they shall have an advisory vote on compensation of named executive officers with the options being every one, two, or three years. Is there any discussion? The motion is ready to be acted upon. If there are any shareholders voting in person, they should now mark their ballots on the motion and allow the ballots to be delivered to the inspector of elections. Ms. Amick, when you are ready, you may give your report. My report is ready. The ballot of the proxy holders in response to proxies that were received through last Thursday evening cast 112,395 votes for a frequency of every year, 4,615 votes for a frequency of every two years, and 609,699 votes for a frequency of every three years of an advisory vote on the compensation of named executive officers. The certification required by Delaware law of the precise count of the votes will be given to the secretary to be placed with the minutes of this meeting. Thank you, Ms. Hammack. The shareholders of the company have determined on an advisory basis that they shall have an advisory vote on the compensation paid to the company's named executive officers every three years. The next item of business is a motion put forth by Ms. Coward, a Berkshire shareholder represented by Mr. Bruce Herbert and Mr. Larry Doors. The motion is set forth in the proxy statement. The motion requests Berkshire Hathaway to establish goals for the reduction of greenhouse gas at its subsidiaries' power plants and prepare a report for shareholders on how it will achieve these goals. The directors have re recommended that the shareholders vote against the proposal. I will now recognize Mr. Herbert to present the motion. To allow all interested shareholders to present their views, I ask Mr. Herbert to limit his remarks to five minutes. The microphone at well, let's have Mr. Herbert first, if you turn up the lights here. Uh, thank you. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Bruce Herbert, and I'm Chief Executive of Newground Social Investment in Seattle, Washington. It is such a pleasure to be here today representing a lifelong owner of Berkshire Class A shares. And I stand to present the resolution found on page 12 of the proxy. 
that asks our company to set goals for reducing greenhouse gas emissions at its energy holdings. This is because serious investors know, and studies show, that climate change creates financial liability. The investor network on climate risk, whose members manage more than $10 trillion, and the Carbon Disclosure Project, representing more than $70 trillion in assets globally, call on companies to disclose risks related to climate change, as well as the actions taken to mitigate those risks. In 2010, 66% of U.S. electric utilities had already set greenhouse gas emission reduction goals. 66%. Unfortunately, uh, Berkshire's Mid-American was not among them. Now, investors have cause to be concerned. Just last year, the SEC announced that climate risks are material and that they must be disclosed. We do applaud Mid-American for having the largest wind, any wind energy portfolio of any utility in the United States. However, it is also true that Mid-American generates close to three-quarters of its power burning coal. Investors globally want to reduce risk through cleaner generation, and 66% of public utilities have already published their plans for doing so. But Mid-American offers no such plan, despite the public proclamation via its website that, quote, we will set challenging goals and assess our ability to continually improve our environmental performance, unquote. There is no more important environmental goal for a, a coal-burning utility than to reduce pollution. But more than this, Berkshire is uniquely vulnerable in that the financial burdens of climate change are pushed onto insurance companies. And as a major insurer, this has serious financial ramifications for our company. Berkshire enjoys a remarkable and well-earned reputation earned over many decades for being practical visionaries. Addressing climate change offers an opportunity for our company both to uphold and to enhance this reputation. So in closing, the world's largest institutional investors call on companies to set greenhouse gas reduction goals. Such goals are key tools for managing the extraordinary business risk of climate change. Two-thirds of utilities in the United States have already set these types of uh, reduction goals. And this resolution, this importantly, gives Berkshire managers the freedom to determine what those goals should be and to shape the process for meeting them. And the major proxy advisory firms have repeatedly recommended voting for similar resolutions. So I will close <clears throat> with a request and a question. The request is for all of you here to please join us in supporting this common sense proposal. And the question, gentlemen, is have you evaluated the business risk of climate change uh, to our companies, and what did you find out? Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Herbert. Now, we have a microphone at zone one. It's available for anyone wishing to speak for or against the motion. Um, you've seen where zone one is there. I'll, I'll wait just a minute or two in case anybody would like. I, I, is there an additional speaker there that's there? I'll ask that, for the benefit of those present, I ask that each speaker 
four against the motion limit themselves to two minutes and confine your remarks solely to the motion. So go ahead. Hi, I'm Paul Herman, founder of HIP Investor. HIP stands for Human Impact and Profit. We're a registered investment advisor in the states of California, Illinois, and Washington. Uh, climate change is obviously one of the risks to Berkshire Hathaway conglomerate companies, including MidAmerica Energy and uh, Burlington, uh, the Burlington Railway, which transports coal, uh, much of which is getting exported to China. So we are concerned about also about the disclosure, quantification, and impact on profit of greenhouse gases, as well as the quantification of the asset of the carbon credits that might be available for eco-efficient companies. So we strongly support this resolution for increased disclosure, increased transparency, and the valuation of the financial returns uh, that are possible or the financial liabilities, especially with your expertise in reinsurance, uh, because reinsurance companies typically put a a quantification of the potential carbon exposure and liabilities, whereas traditional insurance companies may not do so. So we strongly advocate for the dis transparency, disclosure, and quantification as to the potential risks and liabilities. The SEC has encouraged this type of disclosure, though they have not mandated it. So Berkshire Hathaway would be a, a leader in doing this, uh, as companies like GE with their Ecoimagination initiative, the 10% of revenue that they generate from their Ecoimagination products, and other leaders uh, uh, from Jeff Immel to leaders of Duke Power that uh, take a positive position on the financial returns that are possible for addressing climate change and carbon efficiency. Thank you. Thank you. Do we have some more speakers there? Uh, Mr. Buffett, Mr. Yeah. Munger. <clears throat> my name is Jefferson Lilly, uh, long-term Berkshire shareholder. Uh, it's my personal opinion that it's the previous two speakers that are the hot air and the problem around global warming, and that we <clears throat> that we not regulate Berkshire Hathaway to force it to have carbon disclosure or other silly rules. It's fine if the managers of the individual businesses choose to do that on their own, but it's completely inappropriate to bring this false religion of global warming to try and regulate Berkshire Hathaway. You guys are doing a great job on your own. Are there any other uh, speakers there that? Mr. Munger and Warren Buffett, I would just like to say one thing which I think is really important. Berkshire Hathaway can be a leader in the environment. And I'm for transparency, as I know these two gentlemen are. And John Doerr, who is very passionate about the environment, and I know if he was here today, he would have the same sentiments as these two gentlemen. And it's important that as American citizens, we care about the environment and not keep polluting the environment. And I'm with these two gentlemen 100%. Thank you. Thank you.
Do we have any others that haven't spoken? Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, my name is Eric Schlein. Um, I am not for this, so against the motion. I think Berkshire Hathaway has a pretty good um, reputation at uh, being clean, being environmentally responsible. I don't think anyone is saying that either Mr. Buffett or Mr. Munger is somehow doesn't care about the environment. I think most people care about the environment, but um, doesn't mean that we should force uh, Mr. Buffett, Mr. Munger, or uh, any of the CEOs to tell them how to run their business. Um, you guys care a lot about Berkshire's reputation, and if Berkshire's uh, subsidiaries are just uh, polluting uh, oceans and ponds and uh, destroying the reputation in uh, different towns and cities, I don't think that would uh, be too cool with uh, either Buffett or Munger. So. Doesn't, doesn't mean you don't care about the environment just because uh, you're not going to somehow regulate and tell other people uh, how to run their business. Let's just uh, do things voluntarily, uh, do things to make money, and be uh, responsible. And in the end of the day, that's what wins. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone uh, additional? Yeah. Uh, my name is Larry Doors, and I, I support this resolution. I don't think anybody is saying anything other than you're a gentleman of great integrity, but this is a dollars and cents issue. Uh, and the EPA is releasing new rules that are um, uh, calling for more regulation of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, so this, you know, we're really approaching this from the point of view of uh, a conglomerate that has insurance holdings, and it really is insurance companies that are bearing uh, the great costs. So I, I'm, I, I'm looking very much forward to your point of view on this. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes, thank you. Uh, David Hughes, uh, shareholder. Um, it's my opinion that this is the right thing to do, and I think that it makes sense to do it as a, uh, an organization prior to being forced to do it. Um, and if this gives you the tools to set the rules your way, as you see fit, then I think that's far more powerful and sets a, a precedent, as Berkshire has done in the past. So I am for the resolution. Thank you. Anyone additional? Hello, my name is Thomas Denkenberger. And, uh, my background was in biochemistry, and I'm very passionate about the environment, and I think it's very important for Berkshire to uh, work to be a leader, and uh, so I'm very much in support of this proposition. Thank you. We got somebody else there? Hi, my name is Sarah Cleveland. I'm from Portland, Oregon. I wanted just to also put a voice in favor of this resolution. And I think it's not about rights or wrong. It's about a willingness to um, take a look at risks and opportunities, and also for Berkshire Hathaway to be a leader, and also work with the subsidiary companies on specific, uh, specific possibilities. Thank you.
You're, Hi, you're my on. name is Sam Roy. Uh, this is my first meeting. Uh, Mr. Munger and Warren Buffett, I'm so impressed how you run your business, but I think you will care for the environment as well. I don't know whether we should impose a rule, but at least you will, by your act, how the local businesses are run and all the operating goes out and adheres, and there is no question that we do everything possibly that we never pollute the air that cannot be changed. It is not hot air, but it is something I'm very passionate about. You can do anything with your environmental, but if you are not taking charge right now, we don't know what the implications would be for our kids and grandkids. I request you give a thorough investigation, and I think you will do that. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger, my name is Bob Stein. I'm a registered professional engineer. I have a couple of comments. I am a Berkshire stockholder. One, uh, I think we all support very sound environmental protection, but the science before this that's being used by EPA for greenhouse gases is, is not necessarily sound and is not necessary in the best interest of Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. Also, everything that the EPA has proposed is not practical and has caused a lot of problems making U.S. competitive in the world industrial market. Thank you. Thank you. Jason, Jason Fang, Palo Alto, California. For me, one, one thing that's really interesting about the issue is that it's something that deserves the passion that people bring to it. And I actually side with many of these people on the uh, science of the issue. What concerns me is not necessarily that Berkshire agreed to the motion. I'm actually against it but that the enterprises under Berkshire are able to help uh, evangelize the, the true science behind what's actually going on and help the American public get a better understanding so that they can also bring about change rather than simply have it all occur from the executive level. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Bill Gunther. I'm a shareholder from Newfane, Vermont. I work as a state forester back home, and I want to say uh, for folks that don't believe global warming is a reality, I wish you would follow me around in the woods. It definitely is. I want to support this resolution, and I hope that the rest of the shareholders will feel important enough to see it through. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, I'm Leon. Um, I care about energy. Um, I care about energy and environment more, uh, 
more than anybody else because I'm currently still studying energy and environmental issues. But I truly believe the power of private sector, the power of free market. And I think um, it's not your responsibility to put the resources of the shareholder for this issue. It's not your expertise. I can personally do a better job to provide environment to do environmental advocacy than you do. So actually, against this resolution. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, sorry, I have a friend to say something. I can translate it for him. Uh, hello. Uh, Okay. Um, he says that the development of solar panel has great impact on China, and the question, and he also thinks that actually um, Berkshire should, should do something and should think about the implication of that. Thank, Thank you. you. Mm -hmm. Okay, whoops, we have one more. Hi, I'm Gavin Thompson, I'm a shareholder. I'm for the motion. I, I'm a career engineer that works with an oil company. And what we found when we started looking at greenhouse gas emissions was that what we thought was going to end up costing the company more money actually created more revenue for the company. And those are some of the stories that generally don't get told, but they are out there. And I would recommend that you take a look at it because in actuality, what you may be dismissing may actually be revenue for your shareholders. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Mr. Ruffin. I'm Mike from Walmanta, and there's obviously a, f a fine line, line between like cutting down the a Amazon forest and like just burning some coal. So sometimes you could give up a little, but you can't really give up that much. So that's why I don't support the motion. Thank you. There do not appear to be any further comments. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Democracy in action at Berkshire. The uh, couple of questions that were raised. Um, in terms of material information or material risks in respect to Berkshire and specifically to our insurance operation, uh, annually, in the 10K, uh, there's a recitation of risks. Uh, and uh, in my own opinion, uh, in terms of our insurance operation, uh, this question does not pose material risk to Berkshire's insurance operations. Uh, the, the question, one gentleman, Toward the end, mentioned the fact that it might even be 
more profitable for Berkshire in terms of uh, what might happen if if uh, we followed the uh, the motion. I ironically, uh, he could be well be right if it were in our determination, but if you just take our three major states in electric utility operation where we serve almost two million customers, Iowa, Utah, and Oregon, but it's true of other states as well. Uh, we operate under the dictates of the utility commissions in those three states, all of which, or each of which, uh, sets their own rules regarding operation and each of which uh, we end up obeying. Uh, if we were uh, to unilaterally, for example, decide to close down a significant coal generation, uh, we would be told to depreciate those plants over a shorter period, and that would translate not into cost to Berkshire, it would translate into higher rates for electricity there. We are entitled to a return on our investment, and the faster the depreciation, uh, the higher the rates have to be uh, in order to achieve uh, allowed returns. Uh, so there was a woman from Oregon speaking, for example, and the burden of uh, any unilateral attempt by us, and we couldn't do it without the approval of the utility commissions, but the burden would fall on customers. And it is true, actually, that we would recoup accelerated depreciation, and we would probably have a much larger investment on which we would be allowed to return in other generating facilities. But this is a question this is not something that the stockholders of Berkshire uh, end up incurring the cost of. It's something that the rate or the users of electricity in these various states uh, will pay for. And that judgment, quite properly, should be made by the public utility commissions of those various states. And whatever they decide, you know, we, uh, we will follow. Uh, and over time, there's no question, just like we've talked about our wind generation in Iowa, this country will move toward different, a different composition of, of uh, uh, electricity generation. And as I stated earlier, I, I personally favor um, more nuclear over time. But that, that will be determined by at the, both at the state level and in some extent in some ways at the national level. Uh, so it's, it's our recommendation that uh, the, the motion be voted uh, down and I think the motion is now ready to be acted upon. Uh, if, there are any others, if there are any shareholders voting in person, they should now mark their ballots on the motion and allow the ballot to be delivered to the inspector of elections. Ms. Amick, when you are ready, you may give your report. My report is ready. The ballot of the proxy holders in response to proxies that were received through last Thursday evening cast 67,733 votes for the motion and 608,576 votes against the motion. As the number of votes against the motion exceeds a majority of the number of votes of all Class A and Class B shares outstanding, the motion has failed. 
The certification required by Delaware law of the precise count of the votes will be given to the secretary to be placed with the minutes of this meeting. Thank you, Ms. Amick. The proposal fails. Does anyone have a any further business to come before this meeting before we adjourn? If not, I recognize Mr. Scott to place a motion before the meeting. I move this meeting be adjourned. Is there a second? I second it. A motion to adjourn has been made and seconded. We will vote by voice. Is there any discussion? If not, all in favor say aye. All opposed say no. This meeting is adjourned. Thank you. Mm -hmm.